Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Bootleg Football Podcast post-draft edition. Apologies for the delay, but we are finally back on track with our post-draft recaps, division by division. Today, we're hitting the AFC North, highly requested because a lot of teams in this division, you could argue every team in this division, had a very, very good draft a couple weeks ago. So I'm excited to get into it. But first things first, as is tradition, EJ... How are you feeling and what are you drinking? Uh, I'm feeling a little low because it's a Monday, but uh, we're about to wipe that out completely because we get to talk about football. We get to talk about AFC North football. And even though neither you or I are fans of uh, a team in this division, specifically, I think we both are fans of this division overall and the way they play football. So uh, really excited to talk about how they did in the draft, what they came out with, what their outlook is for the year. Uh, and I am pleased to be drinking a local ale today. I was able to go out and refresh uh, the beer supply. This is from Hales Ales, which hails out of Seattle. Um, it is their Mongoose IPA, a real standard brew for them. Um, Hales has been around since 1983. I love going up to their uh, brewery and tap house in Seattle. Really happy to be able to get a hold of a couple of their beers and uh, crack one open for the podcast. So I'll do that right now. But what are you drinking? I will say, I've actually had that before. Uh, I had that the same day that I went to a McMinimins when I was up there uh, a couple of years ago because I wanted to try uh, a, kind of a local, as many local brews as I could. I know Seattle's kind of a, a mecca for that. And uh, I, I actually really like, <laughs> really like, I'm not normally an IPA guy, but I really like it. Uh, it's not kind of overwhelmingly hoppy like a lot of IPAs are. Like they, they balance it really well. Yeah, no, Hales is great stuff. They make a lot of styles, and I would encourage anybody that can get their hands on some to try it out. Hales, one of my favorite local breweries, so super happy to have their stuff on the pod uh, tonight. But what do you have? Uh, I have the opposite of a microbrew. I have one of the most well-known and widely distributed single malt scotches in the world in my hand, and that is the Macallan 12, uh, which uh, I know a lot of people say, ah, oh, Brett, you should be drinking the craft distillery stuff that you got from Virginia Distillery Company. And yes, I do love that. But at the same time, my brother just got me this bottle this weekend for my birthday. So I wanted to pay tribute and a thank you to him for bestowing upon the Macallan in my life. I, I haven't had a Macallan in a while, um, but I am a fan of sherried Highland single malt scotches. Uh, it's not as sherried as that Kirkland one that I had uh, a little back, a little while back on the show, mainly because that one's a 22 year, so it just it's in the barrel forever. This one's only a 12, so it's not quite as fruity, but.
but it's still just ultra smooth, velvety. You get a little bit of hint of uh, kind of like a ginger spice from the barrel. Um, it, kind of vanilla-y. Again, not as dark as uh, that 22-year space side that I had a couple weeks back. But still, I mean, McAllen is high, high, high quality. And that's why everybody loves it and everybody knows it. So yeah, I'm, I'm kind of having that rock me to sleep tonight. But I do want to start out on an equally high note. This was a team that I talked about heavily on the YouTube channel. I mean, you praised them repeatedly over and over when we did our big draft live stream uh, a couple weeks back, and that's the Cleveland Browns. And uh, I I just want to list off all their picks here because it is as impressive a class as anyone in the whole league. So listen to this. First round, they got Jedrick Wills, tackle out of Alabama. Round two, Grant Delpit, free safety out of LSU. Round three, Jordan Elliott, uh, three-tech out of Missouri. And then second, third-round pick, they got Jacob Phillips, their big linebacker from LSU. Well, I mean, not big, but he plays big, that's for sure. Round four, Harrison Bryant, one of our favorite tight ends out of Florida Atlantic. Round five, which they got from the Colts, they picked up Nick Harris, uh, center from your neck of the woods over at UW. And then round six, uh, which they got from the Cardinals, they picked up Donovan Peoples-Jones, uh, my sixth-ranked wide receiver, if I remember correctly, from Michigan, who fell almost inexplicably to super late in the draft. So that's kind of a from the top down, the class we're looking at here, and it is incredibly impressive. So first things first, let's talk about Jedrick Wills, my favorite tackle in the draft. Was he your OT1 as well? Um, I had him tied depending on system, but uh, clearly, if not your clear tackle one, no worse than probably tackle two. Saw him down at tackle four or five on certain lists and just wondered what they didn't see in his game because there's not that many things he doesn't have. And the Browns can certainly use him. He's an absolute stalwart. He's going to play right away. Uh, people talk about plug and play. I, I don't really think he's going to play well. And look, this is a tough division to play offensive tackle in. They're not short on pass rushers in this division, and they're certainly not short on physical football. And Jedrick Wills is, I think, um, I don't want to say uniquely prepared to deal with both, but well prepared he's to mean, deal with both. man. <laughs> yeah, he's a tough hombre. This is this is not a wilting flower. You don't, in the AFC North, pick up you know, folks that don't play big, strong, big boy football. And Wills is really, really capable of that. He can brawl if he needs to, and he's going to need to in the division. I think he's a great fit, and you'd identified him actually a couple of weeks before when you did your you know, detailed study. I remember you texting me and saying, man, if somehow he possibly falls to Cleveland, because a lot of people didn't think he would, if you look at the sort of mock draft consensus, it was pretty likely that maybe even the Giants were going to pick him up at four. Uh, there's a couple other teams that could have jumped in there and people could have traded up as well. But you said if he makes it to pick 10, and I don't think he will, but if he does, he is perfect for what Kevin Stefanski wants to do with the Browns. Like Kevin Stefanski's favorite play is Jedrick Wills' best play. And here we go. We get to the draft. Pick 10. Jedrick Wills is there. It's just a knockdown, like perfect fit, high draft yeah. pick. Fits team, fits scheme. The player has very few holes. Just a great, great pick. Yeah, like you mentioned, you know, Stefanski's going to base his offense on I'm running outside zone lead. 
you know, to, to the left end and have Baker kind of boot out to the right because we know how deadly Baker is when he's rolling to his right. So we're going to try to run left as much as humanly possible. And, and Wills is going to be playing left tackle for them because they got Conklin at right tackle. And he is a mean, nasty, physical, and disciplined run blocker, especially in the zone game. And so if you want to establish the run to the left so that you can boot Baker out to the right where he's comfortable, I mean, he is absolutely perfect. And and what's ironic is they they were so confident that he was their guy that they told him before the draft. You know, I, I asked my buddy about it over there. They, they told him and his agent before the draft, look, if you're there, we're going to take you. But they didn't think he was going to be there, so they felt comfortable telling him that. You know, never in their wildest imagination did they think that was actually going to come true. Next thing you know, without even having to give up assets, he's sitting there at 10. And, you know, it, it's, it's a run-the-card-in kind of situation. They had nobody else on their board that they would have taken above him. Like, nobody. He was their their top player in terms of fit and talent and everything. It's it's a dream scenario that, that he was there. So I know that they're excited they got him. I know that Jed's excited to be there. Um, he can't wait to go against all of, uh, of the great pass rushers they have in that division. Um, I, I hit him up a little bit after the draft, and, and he's super stoked to go against T.J. Watt. He just he can't wait. He's already studying his ass off to try to figure out how he's gonna how he's gonna protect Baker from from Watt. But uh, that's a battle I really can't wait for. Uh, in round two, they double dipped in the SEC and they got arguably the most dangerous free safety in this class, and Grant Delpit, another guy that I did not expect to slip to where they got him. I thought he was going to be a first-round pick just for his range and ball skills alone. I know there's a little bit of a tackling issue, but you you've, you, and I have watched Eddie Jackson as much as anybody, and I remember that Eddie wasn't exactly a great tackler coming out of Alabama either, but he had range and he had ball skills, and he at least had a willingness to tackle, even if he wasn't very good at it in college. I kind of see Delpit the same way where, you know, it, does he take great angles? No, but at least he tries. And as long as he can generate a bunch of turnovers on the back end with his range and ball skills and, and man coverage ability in the slot, I'm kind of okay with it. Yeah, Delpit's really like an air superiority fighter in the back end at, at safety. He almost plays safety like you want your top corner, or your top boundary corner to play. He is such an athletic rangy sort of shutdown player against the pass and that's incredibly valuable in today's nfl you have to have a multitude of those players you have to have three four sometimes even five of those players sprinkled in throughout your secondary gone are the days when you can have that safety you can hide against the pass because you're going to see four receivers you might not see four wide receivers but you're going to see a move tight end who moves just like a wide receiver you're going to see running backs coming out of the backfield that might be his responsibility that move just as well or maybe even a little better than some wide receivers so you always have to be ready for the pass in the modern nfl and grant delpit arguably one of the best safeties in this class at countering that so he had great value tackling was certainly an issue i think the jackson compare uh comparison is viable i think jackson was a better tackler uh but you're right delpit is not a uh, lack of willingness and lack of willingness i think is harder to instill it reminds me of the old bill parcells quote right if they don't bite when they're puppies they're not going to bite when they're dogs um delpit's <laughs> one willing of the to best bite. football quotes of all time by the way <laughs> yeah no delpit's willing to bite he's just not particularly good at it especially when he's sort of coming forward to fill now he can make slashing plays against wide zone run schemes right where he dives in and blows up a guy's legs he has highlights that way it's not that he can't tackle or that he won't it's that occasionally he really gets crossed up and looks bad and that's you mentioned angles um 
or just technique. When he's breaking down on a guy in space, it doesn't always end well for him. Now, if he's mirroring a guy in phase, he gets that guy down. It's not like he's tissue paper back there. Uh, but maybe the tackling thing was overblown. Maybe more folks didn't feel that he was a scheme fit because of that lacking in his game. Or maybe they just didn't have him rated as highly as some other safeties that went before him. 44 is not exactly um, low air in terms of the draft. It's a little lower than people. A lot of people had him pegged as a first rounder. I don't think that should be any disappointment. And not certainly for Browns fans. They get a very good player against the primary weapon in NFL offenses, which is the pass. And I think Delpit could be a long-term starter for him. Are you thinking the same thing that I am, that they put Carl Joseph down in the box at strong safety and have him be full-time free safety with Andrew Sandejo maybe coming in as like a dime safety hybrid linebacker? Gee, you think? Kind of guy? <laughs> if I tell <laughs> you you can have Grant Delpit or Carl Joseph against most receivers in the NFL, which one are you picking? Yeah, probably Grant Delpit. <laughs> right, and this is a huge. This is coming from a huge Carl Joseph fan coming out in the draft. Like, I think Joseph is a better two-way player than a lot of people give him credit for, but he is more effective down around the line. He's an extremely physical player. He's great in short zone coverage, tight ends, little running back flares. Um, he can play a little bit of slot as well, but against super quick slot players, he's going to struggle a little bit. So uh, Delpit has that very fluid range. He's got more length than Joseph does as well. Um, and quite frankly, I, I think Carl Joseph near the line is a, is a win for the Browns as well. So, um, yeah, I think that's a, a solid pairing that gives you a bunch of options. And, you know, the Sandejo addition gives you that sort of third safety look, which quite frankly, you know, they play a lot at Alabama. We talked about Alabama with Cedric Wills. Like they play three safeties for the majority of the game. And that look is creeping into the NFL more and more. Keeping it with the defense, uh, Jordan Elliott from Mizzou, when you know when you were down at my house and we were having that four-day film binge, you know on our on our eight-hour period where we were just ripping through defensive tackles. Elliott was one of the guys we watched, and he's somebody that on first viewing we were kind of like, eh, I don't know, and then you know as we kind of watched and second and third time we maybe warmed up to him a little bit, but I don't think either one of us ever bought this Jordan Elliott in the late first round talk, I personally thought he was going to go in the third round and then he went in the third round. So I think the value was fine. Um, in terms of role, I'm not sure if he's going to get on the field over Larry Ogunjobi or Sheldon Richardson, or obviously Andrew Billings. He's probably going to be stuck in a rotational role, at least for this year. Do you see him ever becoming a starter or is he purely going to be one of those rotational guys you bring in for 20, 30 snaps of fire a brimstone and that's it? You could. And it is interesting. We both watched this guy and we had the top maybe sort of eight defensive tackles queued up to watch throughout sort of the evening, afternoon and evening. And we got to Elliott and um, maybe it was just kind of his sandwich position in between the two guys we watched on either side of him. But we watched a couple of tapes and sort of looked at each other and said, what's the deal with this guy? Like, why are people saying he's like DT? Some people had him as DT3. And right? for context, the two guys he was sandwiched in between we watched him were Ross Blacklock and Neville Gallimore. It really wasn't fair. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of like, yeah, it's kind of like a certain quarterback from Wazoo <laughs> having to throw after folks with really big arms at the combine that was also equally unfair but um that those sort of things happen in the draft cycle i, I don't know elliot is one of the guys i had a tougher time getting a read on in this particular draft class and um 
you know, I try and do as much of my watching uh, film as I can before I listen to anybody else's opinion. But look, that's impossible in today's world. Um, you're going to get a little bit of flavor. And really your job as an analyst, uh, my job as an analyst, uh, is to sort of go through those folks year after year and say, well, did they turn out to be right or did they turn out to be wrong? And are they right more often than they're wrong? And do I trust them because of that? Or do they have a position group they're really good with that, boy, if they say something about a wide receiver and, you know, they've been really right about wide receivers, then I should look at that the next year over year. And there were some people that I really respect, some other analysts who I really respect, who are really high on Jordan Elliott. And it made me think, what am I missing? Right? So I went back, even after I left your house, I watched more tape of him and dug into other games and, and asked people, hey, what's the best game? What's what's the game that's going to make me fired up about this guy? And you know, I watched those games, and I just didn't see it with him. And that made me wonder, is it me or is it him? Right? Am I missing something that's here? Because there's a lot of people I really respect that really like him. And I never did find it. He never did climb up my rankings all that much. But again, 88, pick 88, semi-deep in the third round, it's a great value for a guy that yeah. even if he is rotational, that's fine for a third rounder. If he comes in on that very talented defensive line and gives them anywhere between 15 and 20 snaps a game and does have some of those flashes that he had at Missouri, like who cares? Like that's a great and thing. That, and now, that's the you, thing is it was his, when he was at Mizzou, it was nothing, nothing, nothing. And then flash. Right. There were long stretches in his tape that didn't excite you. And then there would be a very exciting play, and that's great. And that's why highlights can be, uh, this is my PSA sort of against only watching highlights, is highlights can be great, but they can also be terribly misleading because you need to see the spaces in between. And the spaces in between with Jordan Elliott weren't tremendous. They weren't amazing. The highlights were pretty darn good, but there just kind of weren't enough of them or they didn't come regularly enough to really get you or I fired up. But again, the third round as a rotational guy, could he... Could he become a starter? I think he probably could. Will he? Uh, I don't know if I'd bet folding money on it, but that's probably okay. Yeah. I mean, if you're, again, we're pick 88. If you're just getting a rotational guy that can get you five sacks a year, that's fine. And I, I think he'll, at least to start out, if he's getting, let's see, probably, what, five, 600 snaps in a year, if you get five sacks out of that for a rookie DT, that's he's going to get a lot of help from the edge because they do have miles. They have Olivier, um, even Claiborne, I think can bring a little bit. So if he can kind of improve himself, I think on stunts, because I think sometimes he doesn't wrap tight enough on stunts and he kind of hurts his own angles. And sometimes I think in terms of creating pressure for others on stunts, he doesn't have, What's the word? I guess some of the craftiness knack. in terms of, yeah. He doesn't have the, the knack the for doing exactly and, that, which is what's my role and what am I doing that might not necessarily get it for me, but might get it for the guy next to me. And I think NFL coaching yeah. will help him with that because he does have a lot of physical gifts. Look, he's a physically talented guy. He's got a good frame and he can make those plays. You do see him. It's just coaching those out of him so they come more often. And he does more of those things consistently even if it's the little things that don't let him win. Yeah, like you see like a guy like Marlon Davidson where he he just understands how stunts and games work and how he can create pressure for others by doing little things um, in, in terms of with timing, with hand placement, how to hold, when to hold, when to slip. Uh, you know, there, there's, a, there's a lot of nuance 
to creating pressure, especially at the NFL level, with only four guys because you have to work as four to beat five. And I think Elliott, most of his flash plays were really when he was getting singled up and beating one-on-ones, not necessarily beating doubles or helping somebody else beat doubles or helping, you know, somebody else kind of create pressure behind him on a stunt. Like that is really where I think he's going to unlock his potentials if he can learn those kind of subtleties, which as a rotational player behind veterans like uh, Sheldon Richardson and, and Larry Ogunjobi, who I think in his first three years has blossomed into a better player than maybe people expected. Um, I think he can get there. It just won't be immediately. But again, third round pick, who cares? Their other third round pick also equally um, categorized, I think, is like a developmental guy with all the tools in the world is Jacob Phillips out of LSU. Um, he started a lot more games uh, than, his, than his running mate that went in the first round, Patrick Queen, who we'll get to. But he wasn't as instinctive or even as developed as Queen, in my opinion. Um, you know, great athlete. He closes in space super quick. He's only 230, but he plays a lot bigger than 230. You wouldn't, you wouldn't guess it by how physical he is. Um, and also great range to the boundary, too. But the awareness wasn't quite like Patrick Queen. I feel like he didn't use his hands as much as Patrick Queen. His hips weren't quite as fluid. Like, there's a reason he went in the third round, despite being a way more experienced player. And I think it's just because the natural feel for the position, uh, much like Jordan Elliott, isn't quite there yet. But if you put him in as kind of a special teams ace role as a rookie and he's learning the position behind Taki Taki and Mac Wilson, who are probably going to be the two nickel starters for them. And maybe he'll get on the field as Sam and base for a few snaps there, but, but really he's going to be kind of taking a year to learn and make his plays on special teams. And if somebody gets hurt, he can, he can come in. But I, I think he's one of those third rounders where you're hoping that he becomes a better player than he is now because he has the tools, but he's not quite ready yet. Yeah, Phillips didn't really light my fire. I thought third was a little bit early for him, and if I have any issue, and it's not a huge issue, we're we're picking nits here for sure, with one of the Browns picks, it was Phillips, and it was more so not because of Phillips, but because he got picked in round three, and I thought there were some other inside linebackers I thought that might have a little bit more value than him at that spot. He never really flashed on tape, and that's not saying a ton because the LSU defense was loaded. Let's talk about it. They got a lot of starters. They had a lot of guys picked in the draft. They always do. Looking at Phillips, he didn't make that many plays that really excited me, but there was definitely potential there. I mean, like you said, long-tenured SEC starter, had some production, um, just wasn't quite at the level of some of his peers, and I think that, in my mind, made him more of a sort of fourth, fifth round pick. Again, this is picking nits. He got picked late in the third, pick 97. Again, if he develops, especially if he develops in the roles you're talking about, which I agree with, special teams, the ability to come in and sub, make a flash play here and there, that's how he's going to learn. If you get anything out of him, that's great. Is it the best value out of a third round pick? Eh, you could argue it is, it isn't. I'm, I'm not going to kill him for it because the rest of the draft was so strong. And if they turn out to be right, hey, awesome. Uh, you know, it was the one pick out of all the picks they made that I was like, eh, that's a little early. And that's not a bad critique of an overall draft class. There was a lot of linebackers that went literally right after him. Malik Harrison was one pick later. Tanner Muse was yep. three pick, pick, picks later. Davion Taylor was also a few picks right after him in the third round of the Eagles. And then Akeem Davis-Gaither was at the top of the fourth. Would you have taken all those guys ahead of him? 
Not all. I would not have taken Davion Taylor ahead of him. Okay. But that's still, I mean, I know, well, to be fair, Davis Gaither is a totally different kind of player. So maybe when yeah, you're thinking about Yeah, and that role, is, that's the thing. It's almost like saying wide receivers, right? And you're talking about some guy that's 5'10", really crafty and has great hands, and some guy that's 6'4", 230, and runs a 4'4". And it's like, well, how do you rank them? <laughs> it's like, Because well, <laughs> one of them's basically a safety. <laughs> right. They don't really play the same position. I mean, it's the label, but they're not. you're not going to ask those two guys to do the same thing on the field. And it's the same way between, I think, Phillips and Akeem Davis Gaither. They're going to have a very different role. So, but even still, I I would have I had Akeem Davis Gaither if we have to do rankings um, above Jacob Phillips. Jacob Phillips just did, really didn't light it up for me. I didn't think he was really necessarily bad, but I thought there were quite a few good inside linebackers in this draft. We're going to get to talk about several of them as we go down the rolls here. Um, but Phillips was just not a guy that kind of caught my eye or made me go, "Ooh, there's there's a lot to work with there." There's definitely tools, but um, there's a lot of guys in in the SEC with tools, uh, and he didn't really light it up for me. I hope he hits it off in in you know for Cleveland. That'd be great, but yeah, was the one pick that I kind of went, Meh, okay, like yeah, I wouldn't have done that there. I would have done it a little bit later. It's not that I disliked him, just value wise, not the, not the strongest pick. Well, I know the 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 pick that did light your fire it was the one in the fourth round at one fifteen. Uh, about 18 spots later, and that's Harrison Bryant tied in at a Florida Atlantic. Uh, one of our favorite tight ends in this class, probably top three for both of us, I would imagine. To get him in the fourth round, especially when looking at some of the guys that went ahead of him, I, I thought that was one of their best picks, honestly, in the whole draft, was getting him that late. Yeah, I you know, the team I root for, the Bears, needed a tight end. They picked one up high with Cole Komet. I think Cole Komet's a good player. If you look at Cole Komet and Harrison Bryant and the difference between the two, I don't think there's a huge difference between the two, but there's a big difference between pick 43 overall and pick 115. And I thought the Bears could have waited, especially. You never can tell when guys are going to go off the board, and once one pick is made, the sort of house of cards falls very differently uh, for the rest of the draft. That's what makes it so fascinating. But it turned out that there were a bunch of tight ends available in the fourth round, and before people say, oh, the Bears didn't have a fourth round pick, I know, but they managed to trade up back into the fifth and get players they wanted to, so they could have done the same thing in the fourth if they wanted a tight end. Harrison Bryant, uh, regardless of that, great two-way tight end. We got to see him down at the senior bowl. Very strong competitor. Tough is what I have in my notes. He's a good, solid two-way tight end. He's a little bit faster than you might think. He's a very good receiver, but he is also a tight end that will stay in and block, and he can do it pretty well, but he will take the hit. He will stand in against the oncoming pass rusher. He is tough as nails and love the way he played both ways, uh, both in blocking and receiving. Thought he was a really good value. There was talk of him going as high at one point as the second round. To get him down in the fourth at 115 um, gives them, I don't know, is it the strongest tight end rotation in the league? Well, I mean, they got Najoku. They got um, Hooper. Austin Hooper, who they just signed. <laughs> I, I personally think they drafted Bryant because Najoku, I think, only has one year left on his deal, and I don't think they're picking up his option. Uh, I think um, they did pick up his, his option, actually. Did they? Okay. And well, that was surprising, given that they drafted a tight end. But um, uh, Barry, Andrew Barry, their GM, said, we're going to do that, and they did. And it was interesting, but come on, that's got to be one of the strongest tight end rooms in the league. I mean, Chicago spends the most on tight ends in the league. They have the number one payroll. But in terms of talent, like Njoku, Hooper, and Harrison Bryant in your tight end room, that's an embarrassment of riches, man. I'd run some three tight end sets if I was them. Well, look at who their coach is. 
Kevin Stefanski. Right. They're going to be doing it. They're going to be in 12 personnel all year long. You know, you're going to have Odell and Jarvis out there. And if they have to go into 11, they can kind of take your pick between Higgins and Taewon Taylor and Peoples-Jones, who we both like, but he's realistically not going to get on the field that much because they're going to be in 12 personnel. They're going to be in 21 personnel. Like that was, uh, they, they got Andy Janovich from Denver as well. And one of their top priorities when Kevin got there was we need to get a fullback. We're going to be running mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah, they did time. that really quickly, too. Like. Really quick. That was the first. Like, they, they went to the Senior Bowl because they wanted yep. to look at who was there. Uh, they wanted to kind of get a feel for who was going to be in this draft class. You know, some people were thinking, okay, maybe they'll they'll go for um, uh, Jose Aguara, who ended up ironically going to, to Green Bay to play in a very similar system, as we talked about last week. Uh, you know, maybe... Bronson Recksteiner was a name that you and I tossed around, who we will get to a little bit later in this show. Uh, Shewu Aliniulua from TCU was kind of a, a fullback convert people tossed around. And they're like, nope, we're going to go get Janovich, somebody who we know works, uh, somebody who's been in the pros and has demonstrated that he can play this role we want him to do, which is playing essentially the Kyle Juszczyk role, who's going to be a, a great blocker. You're going to get him involved in the pass game. And, and that's what their offense is going to be. It's going to be 21 personnel. It's going to be 12 personnel, 22 personnel. We're running the ball down your throats. We're, we're taking shots to Odell off play action. If it's third and five, we need to go into 11. We've got Jarvis. We've got Higgins. You know, realistically speaking, um, we're not going to see a big stat line uh, for Harrison Bryant. But every single catch that he makes out of these personnel groupings, I think is going to be a big one because of the nature of the system, how much play action they use, how good he is after the catch. We're going to see him get free on deep overs off play action. We're going to see them throw some tight end screens to him. He's going to be involved as a true Y in, in blocking because I think he's a better blocker than than Njoku is. Um, and that's not really Hooper's game either. Like he's, he's going to be on the field and every play he makes will be impactful. But don't let the box score fool you. He's going to be an important part of this team, even if the numbers aren't quite uh, spectacular. Yeah, he's a fun player to watch. I think he landed in an excellent spot. And people might say, well, how can you say that? He's got two really talented veterans in front of him. His his path to playing time is exactly what we just described, right? <laughs> most, <laughs> most teams are not going to use their third tight end a ton. Um, the Browns are going to be an exception, so... Good for him. Happy for his landing spot. Really excited to see what he's going to do. Definitely a player I'm going to be happy to follow, um, even though he didn't end up on my team, uh, because he's very talented, and I think he's going to be a really good fit with what they want to do. He certainly displayed most of those skills in college. So, yeah, happy with that landing spot. Happy with the value. Really solid pick. I'm going to let you wax poetic a little bit about your guy, Nick Harris. Oh, this is my this is my hand over my heart for Nick Harris. I, I watched Nick Harris uh, before I went to the Senior Bowl, um, and he was one of the linemen that stuck out to me, not because he's necessarily the most talented or anything else, but because he, because he had a trump card. He had one thing that he was really good at, and Nick Harris is preternaturally quick. He is so mm-hmm. quick as a center. There are so many plays in the Washington catalog where he basically snaps, sprints out, turns 90 degrees and is waiting for the linebacker to turn towards him all set up waiting for the running back to run right behind him off his backside he's out snaps into 90 degrees and is already engaging the linebacker before the linebacker really even steps and turns you don't see that very often in fact he's so quick that he gets to the third level centers that can get to the second level linebacker level regularly are considered really quick fleet of foot right 
there's a bunch of plays watching Washington where Harris goes, touches the linebackers he goes by, just kind of gives him the offhand punch and wipes out the safety, right? Gets yeah. to the third level. And that's rare. That's just not something you see. And the more I watch them, the more I thought, wow. And the thing I couldn't shake out of my head, and they're not the same player, I'm not saying they're the same player, is undersized, very tough, scrappy center that's super quick coming out of you. Oh, UW. I know where you're going. I bet you do. And that's Olin Krutz, right? I had the pleasure of watching yep. Olin Krutz play for the Bears <laughs> for a very long time. And they're not terribly different players. They are different. Um, I would say Harris is even a little bit quicker than Olin was. I'd say not Olin as strong, is a, but no, Olin wise, was yeah. a better anchor, right? If you've got to give them their own trump cards, Olin was just a very tough nut to crack in the middle of that Bears line. Um, Harris has got it. If if Harris has a weakness or the reason he went, you know, down in the fifth round is that he doesn't have that drop bottom anchor. He's not Lloyd Cushenberry. And we did see him get pushed around a little bit at the senior bowl. He had up and down reps. But again, you get him into a system where that quickness is going to be valued. He's probably going to be a backup to start. And watch him get out, especially in the preseason. Watch him get out and seal the second level. And I mean completely. Not like push and shove and kind of trying to move the guy. Like stand in front of him, elbows out, and seal the second level and he does it over and over and over again so really enjoy nick harris um hoping that he gets into that you know pro nutrition and conditioning program can add a little bit of sort of upper body torque strength and really start to anchor because look he's got some serious dirt eaters to go against in the middle of afc north defensive lines he's gonna have to anchor if he doesn't anchor he's not gonna play well in that division and it's not yeah. that he can't he needs to get better at it but if he does boy He's a fun player to watch. And here's my thing with him. People are going to say, oh, you know, Hayward is going to eat his lunch. Williams is going to eat his lunch. Um, DJ Reader is going to destroy him. You know, he's going to completely crush the pocket. Yeah, duh. (laughs) He's not that strong. But here's the thing. Most of Cleveland's passes are going to be off play action. It's going to be bootlegs. They're not going to be pushing him into the pocket. They're going to be trying to beat him front side on a reach block for a run that's not actually happening. If there's one system that I think can kind of protect him from his anchor issues, it's this one because a lot of their long developing passing plays are going to be off bootlegs where he's not going to be pushed in the backfield. Like he's going to be okay in this system. He's, he's not... Um, you know, if he was in Kansas City where, hey, we're running empty protection, you've got to pick up a nose or, or you got to pick up a, a three technique all by yourself on a slide, like that's one thing. He'd get completely demolished. In this specific system, he is perfect. Perfect fit. Can he get stronger? Yes. Will he be as exposed in Cleveland as he would in other places? Absolutely not. So I'm I'm really in lockstep with you on that one. I think he fell because there's legitimate concerns about his anchor, but that, that's not going to be a, a huge deal in Cleveland just because of the nature of their offense. Um, we, we mentioned it a little bit earlier. The last pick they had, they only picked, what, seven players total. Their their last pick was in the sixth round. It was Donovan Peoples-Jones, wide receiver from, from Michigan, who both of us during the, the uh, draft live stream continuously were like, is this where DPJ goes? Is this where DPJ goes? And that started in probably the fourth round. And they got him all the way at 187 in the sixth. Uh, Immensely talented guy, ultra explosive. 
Is he as polished as you would hope for from, you know, the the number one receiver recruit in the nation, a five-star guy? Uh, no, you know, he, he's not Jerry Judy. He's not even Henry Ruggs in terms of route polish, but he's exceptional after the catch, really good returner, tough over the middle, great. And I mean, great in terms of just making people miss. I think there's a lot to work with there. And I think if he can kind of get under... Odell and Jarvis's wing, who are both uh, exceptional route runners, really hard workers. I never want to hear anybody talk smack about the, the effort that Odell and Jarvis put into the game because they're great teammates and they're great workers. And I think DPJ can learn a lot from them. I, I think he can be a really, uh, a really good third receiver for them, um, potentially overtaking Higgins and Taylor at some point. Obviously, he's not going to start as their third receiver, but I, I think he has all the talent to, and I think he will get there eventually. Again, this was just a pure value pick from them, and I love that they pulled the trigger on it. Yeah, getting him in the sixth might actually make him better, right? Yes, I DPJ, agree. if you get him in the bottom of the second or the top of the third uh, after what he was able to accomplish at Michigan, which was pretty, pretty incredible given that Shea Patterson was throwing the ball and Michigan doesn't prioritize receivers with his skill set very often they do occasionally but he's not going to have the production uh of a guy coming out of say lsu this year with joe brady's offense that's that's not the system they run it's not the numbers you're going to see from him doesn't mean he doesn't have that physical talent um i think he does and it is untapped you mentioned that that we haven't seen the best of what dpj can be and you push that guy with that much competitive competitiveness like you said top recruit in the nation at his position all the way down to the sixth round 187 just about dropping out of the bottom of the sixth round and it's gonna sting you say this is what we think of you right this is what the league thinks of you and then you like you said you put him in a room with two pros and they're like hey man draft slot doesn't matter matters whether you play we're going to teach you how to play right we're going to teach you the things you need to know to succeed at this level not that level things went at the last level you can either hang on that or you can wipe that slate clean and you can play here now and if he does that if he buys into that some guys will and some guys won't but if he uses that as motivation and he he's in a great spot again he's got some veteran matters in front of him that can really show him the ropes and be pros and he's got a ton i I wrote dripping with physical gifts right this guy is is no tool short in the wide receiver shed, right? He has everything that you want. And he's just got to put it all together and he got to give him a chance. And he's going to have to earn it. He's not going to have a ton of reps as a sixth round wide receiver. He's not going to come in and just automatically be sort of gifted that, well, you were a second rounder draft spot. You know, he's not going to get that in an offense. He's going to have to earn it. And if he digs into that, he can do it. Like the tools are there. So for a sixth round pick, 187, tremendous value for the Browns. Yeah, overall, I mean, just an amazing class. Well done for a a first year effort from Andrew Barry, despite getting on the job late. Remember, they hadn't even hired him. But when when we were down at the Senior Bowl, um, they, they still had Elliot Wolf down there representing them at the time, who's no longer with the organization. So he, uh, he, he kind of came on and, and did the job in, what, two months and had a maybe their best class they've had in years. So phenomenal job by them. Can't wait to see what they do when they have a full year with Andrew Barry to kind of get ready and prepare. Uh, I, I really can't Yeah, wait. We, should, we should mention that Andrew Barry in general so far is just 
winning the grade since he took that spot. The yeah. Browns have not been an ideal job for a GM for quite some time. They have had a rotating door, um, and they have not generated a lot of stability at that spot. And they have generated a really good roster, <laughs> which is lost on a lot of people. <laughs> like, if you look from top to bottom down the Browns roster, it's really good. Like, yeah, it it's is the best so, roster in the division. Yeah, it's so full of players, right? And Andrew Berry stepped in on short notice, as you said, took over a loaded roster, and then just packed it right to the top in his first draft. That's that's really solid work by him. It's super exciting because, look, he's got some big GM shoes to sort of compete with just in this division. Forget the NFL. There's at least two other GMs in this division that have a long success of milking the draft for a lot of talent. And if his team's going to compete against them, he's got to play with the big boys, and he certainly looks like he can right off the bat. Speaking of the big boys, uh, Mm. the Steelers have been one of the biggest boys in the whole conference for many, many, many years. Uh, had a little bit of misfortune last year in terms of injuries and especially losing Big Ben early in the year, but they they still held on to Week 17, potentially you know trying to fight for a, a wild card spot just kind of on the back of their defense alone. And I do want to go through their draft because you could argue that their first round pick, which they didn't get to make, still was one of the main reasons why they were even competing for a playoff spot despite having a horrific offense last year, and that's Minka Fitzpatrick, who they got from the Dolphins and traded their first round. And then on top of that, in the second round, they got Chase Claypool. In the third round, they got Alex Highsmith, uh, the linebacker from Charlotte. Round four, Anthony McFarlane, speedster running back out of Maryland. And then also in round four, uh, from the Titans via the Dolphins, Kevin Dotson, uh, the guard. They got Antoine Brooks Jr., another uh, Terrapin, safety in the sixth round. And then round seven, they they wrapped it up with Carlos Davis out of Nebraska. But I do kind of want to start with that Minka pick I guess we can just call it a pick uh, for for a first rounder that's what they spent the pick on so yeah I mean well. it's, it counts technically and for a first rounder to get arguably one of the two or three best free safeties in the league I know Eddie's thrown around and, and Bayard's thrown around and, and Earl's thrown around but I think Minka is easily uh, competing for that title of best free safety in the league I think that's a, a first round pick well spent easily Easily, with what the Steelers have pulled out of Minka's talent. Like, Minka was always talented, right? Coming out of Alabama, great two-way player, could play corner. People were like, where are you going to play him? Are you going to play him at nickel? Are you going to play him at corner? And again, it's that more sort of Alabama positionless defense. They're playing three safeties all the time. Their nickel guy or their star guy, as what Saban calls it, plays a little bit of sort of slot, a little bit of safety. It's it's not necessarily a defined role like it is in the NFL. Minka had tons of talent, didn't get to see all of that with the Dolphins. He comes to the Steelers and morphs into not just a Pro Bowl player, but an All-Pro in basically half a season, right? By the middle of the season, Minka Fitzpatrick is running the back end of that Steelers defense, and they are formidable. That's exactly what you want out of a first-round pick. So I don't think anybody is crying tears about the fact that the Steelers didn't have a first-round pick in this draft because... The player they got in return for that transformed their defense. It's not just like, oh, yeah, he's good. He literally transformed their defense. And that's a, again, that's a mark of a really solid GM who has the confidence to say, nope, this is worth it. We know how he's going to fit. We know how we're going to use him. We have a plan. And he shows up and makes it happen as the player and makes the GM look really, really good. 
I got to see him uh, live last season. I flew out to Pittsburgh, and uh, me and my wife went to the Steelers game against the Rams last season. I think it was like week nine or, or somewhere around there. Um, and it, he, seeing him live in that game and, and all the impact plays he made, deflections, interceptions, tackles for loss, uh, pressures, I mean, it, it was it's one thing to watch him on TV, but when you can sit up there from the top level of Heinz Field and watch him go to work, both in between plays and on the bench, constantly communicating, constantly calling out what the offense is doing. I mean, it was him versus Sean McVay. That's really what that game was, and it was remarkable to watch. I'm sitting there in the fourth quarter. It's it's kind of a defensive slugfest, mainly because both offenses just can't get anything done. Mason Rudolph was struggling like crazy in that game. And I, I kind of started to see the stands empty a little bit. About halfway through the fourth quarter, the Rams had the ball. Everybody kind of expected them to go down and score. Nobody had any faith in the offense to come back. So people are starting to pile out early, try to beat the traffic that's notoriously bad around Hines after games. And all of a sudden, Renegade comes on. And, and there's a tradition. If you're not a Steelers fan, you, you, don't, you don't know it. When Renegade comes on, you put your ass back in the seat. And you start waving that towel. And that was bone chilling it was one of the craziest stadium experiences I've ever had to watch that song come on and watch literally 20,000 people stop in the aisles turn around and go back to their seats and scream their asses off and they were rewarded for that with Minka making multiple game ceiling plays on not just that drive but the next two drives too including uh, an interception and there was one play he made where uh, it was down in the red zone. I think it was like a, a run to the left where I don't know how the hell he read it. And I, I kind of went back when I did a film room episode on him. And the Rams ran that one play once all year down in the red zone. And he knew it was coming and literally closed on it before before it was even developing. I'm trying to remember the exact play it was. I think it was like a toss or something like that. But I remember, if you go to the, watch the film room episode on him, I, I kind of broke down because I, I was fascinated by that and literally went through every single snap of the Rams offense for the whole year to try to find that one play to figure out how he read it. And they ran it one time, and he saw it and won the game. And he is he was the engine, not just of that defense, but of that team. I saw it with my own eyes live in that stadium. You don't mess with Renegade <laughs> in Heinz Field, and he paid that <laughs> off in like his fifth game there. It's insane. Like that is that is the best first round pick that the Steelers have made in quite some time, and and it wasn't even a player that they originally selected. So well done by them. They got a future All Pro, uh, free safety for a lot of years out of that one first rounder. Yeah, he's he's tremendous. And again, I think the word is transform. Right, the Steelers defense has been really looking for that piece. They thought they had it developing. They lost it with Ryan Shazier and to see make a command a level farther back and do all the same types of things, right? Exhibit that range. And it's not just one thing, right? It's the reading, it's the range, it's the speed, it's the going backwards, going forwards. He's such a versatile player. And we didn't see that full range of versatility in Miami. We get to in Pittsburgh and that's just a, that's just a treat as football fans. Yeah. It's, it's the big plays and big moments factor. And, and he, he definitely delivers on that. Um, there was another play that I player that I saw live with you down at the Senior Bowl. They took in the second round. That's Chase Claypool, and you and I kind of got to to giggle and watch him throw DBs all over the place 
for three days straight in practice and just, I mean, he turned every single route into a boxing match, it seemed like. Super fun to watch. I know we were kind of speculating on if he was going to convert to tight end. Sounds like they're going to maybe use him either as a big slot or as a true X. Kind of depends on where they want to put Juju. But I think with his versatility, that's a pretty good fit. It's a great fit, and I don't think there's probably a better place for a guy like Chase Claypool to land than the Steelers. And it has a lot to do with the draft, right? has a lot to do with their pedigree of draft success. And if there are certain clubs that have certain success with certain positions. And the Steelers, Mm -hmm. you said you don't mess with Renegade? You you don't question a Steelers wide receiver pick, right? At this point, (laughs) the Steelers know how to pick wide receivers. And even if it's not the wide receiver that everybody else wants or covets, um, or you're not exactly sure, Chase Claypool is a little bit like Isaiah Simmons. And you might say, EJ, how how is that possible? We talked about this with Isaiah Simmons way back. If you didn't have a plan for him, it's really kind of a dangerous pick. And we actually saw some teams say that out loud, like the Panthers, right? We thought Mm -hmm. it would be better if Isaiah Simmons would go to a more mature organization. Right, Which that is, is their way of saying he's not a he's not a safety. He's a linebacker. Right, we don't we don't know what to do with him really, and that makes him a really high risk pick. So we're just not gonna do that, right? Claypool was kind of like that. He's really big. He's fast. He didn't have a ton of production at Notre Dame. What do you do with him? Is he a big slot? Is he outside? As soon as he went to the combine and ran a blazing time, and everybody compared his height, weight, and speed to one. Megatron, who used to play for the Lions, that was kind of it for the tight end conversation. You're like, okay, he pretty much ran Calvin Johnson speed. We got to use him like Calvin Johnson, right? Or all idiots. And there's a you laugh at that, but there's a lot of NFL people that kind of look around and go, oh my god, I'm the wide receiver coach for X. If we if we pick Chase Claypool, I have no idea what I'm gonna do, right? (laughs) And that's you know. He goes to a place where you can pretty much guess that Mike Tomlin and the crew are nodding, <laughs> got the cigars out. They're like, we know what to do with him. We got it. We're good. Don't, don't worry about us. We'll, we'll be ripping you up with him next year, no matter where we put him, right? Because the Steelers at this point, you just don't question their pick of wide receivers. And Claypool's got all the tools. Like, this, this is not some guy that's a reclamation case. He is a very talented guy we saw him like you said tear up the senior bowl we both kind of looked at each other and went man this guy's fast he's physical he runs very sharp routes got good hands like uh what's what's not to like so the fact that he lands again with pittsburgh in a place where they really know how to draft and develop wide receivers makes me excited that he's going to reach the top end of his potential not just the middle plus you got to think about who's in the division everybody's going after baltimore baltimore has two highly physical boundary corners in Humphrey and Peters. Like You need a receiver out there that's not going to get beat up because they will beat you up if you don't have any sort of size and physicality out there. And they're going to play press all day. They're going to let Earl roam the back end, and they're going to say, beat us. Like We we dare you to beat us. And they need somebody who can uh, basically be a push-off artist and get away with it, and that's kind of what Claypool does. So I, I think it's a perfect fit for the division, especially if you're going after the Ravens. Um, and I, I, there were other receivers that maybe I had higher overall grades, but in terms of pure fit for their team and their division, I, I can't speak highly enough about that pick. Um, one round later, they did pick up Alex Highsmith, the linebacker from Charlotte, who 
weirdly enough, might have been the most controversial pick, mainly because I think a lot of people didn't watch Charlotte. But I, I thought that was actually pretty appropriate value all the way at 102. What did you think? It's about where they needed to get him. There were a lot of people that thought in the league that thought very highly of Alex Highsmith. And if they'd waited much longer, he wouldn't have been available to them. And yeah, no way. people who don't pay attention will say, oh, he would have been available in the fourth. He would have been available in the fifth. Nope, he sure wouldn't have. Like, <laughs> multiple sources confirm that that is not the case, right? Uh, Highsmith is, I had him listed as kind of the best upper mid-tier edge in this class, right? He's a guy with the most intriguing tools at that sort of middle group towards the upper end, um, largely because he's got speed. And if you're going to pick an edge player, he better have speed. And is a little bit more speed-based than typical Steelers edge players of the past. But if you look at the Steelers' defense, it's not surprising. And this is something I picked up from a buddy of mine who is a longtime Steelers fan, longtime Steelers watcher. And we talked about this transformation that the Steelers have made. It's really remarkable, right? If you think back to, like, I would say five years ago, what the Steelers' defense was, they were hammers, right? They had big, yeah. strong guys up front in those three positions on the defensive line. They had guys that looked like defensive linemen playing their two outside linebacker spots that were incredibly hard, and they were banging away against the Ravens, you know, taking on all the big, heavy Ravens backs that were banging through there. That was that was their mantra. That was the Steelers' sort of go-to on defense for a long time. And then... Mike Tomlin being a smart coach and Kevin Colbert being a really smart GM said, eh, the league's changing. We're going to get, we're going to get run around, not run through. We're going to get run around. And they started to change. And the Ryan Shazier pick was sort of, uh, not the beginning of that transformation, but a sort of hallmark of that transformation of we're going for a little bit lighter and a lot faster. And the rest of the defense followed suit in Pittsburgh. And over the last two years, especially, they have transitioned to a speed-based defense because they understood where the league was going and they wanted to get there in time. And when you look at the pick through that lens, Highsmith is sort of a new style that they're trying to integrate to their offense, which is fast. Highsmith, if you haven't watched him, that is his calling card. He has got speed. He's got juice off the edge. Now, he could work on some hand use. He could work on varying that rotation to not just go for the outside edge, but boy, he has that in spades. And look, edges that don't have that rarely succeed, right? If they don't have some burst, either first 10 yards or overall flash speed, uh, they're less likely to succeed, especially out of that middle tier. And Highsmith has that. So don't have a don't have an issue with where he was picked. Understand the fit sort of schematically with where Pittsburgh is as a transition in a defense to a more speed-based, range-based defense. And it'll be really interesting to see how they develop him because they don't have a great history of developing those edges, especially not speed edges in their system like they do with wide receiver. Not saying they can't do it. Just fascinated to watch how it all plays out. Yeah, it, it took them a lot of years to finally land on a good duo of Watt and Dupree. And those those are probably the only two that have really kind of developed in the last, what, five, six years. And and they have they took a lot of swings <laughs> at that pinata and, and to finally land on those two that, that, that made it. And so Highsmith, I think, is going to be an interesting developmental guy behind Watt and Dupree. Part of the reason why I think he really intrigued them, you watched him do the, um, the not the agility drills, but like the fluidity drills 
uh, at the combine in terms of how do you work in space? Can you drop? Can you open your hips? Um, you know, how, how fluid are you in terms of changing direction? I think that's really where he looked the best at the combine. You see he ran 4'7", 33-inch vert. Like, those are fine numbers, but he's more explosive and he's faster in pads, so I kind of ignore those numbers. Like, I know what I saw on tape, and he's a lot faster than that. But the fluidity drills at the combine, where you see how quickly he can change direction, that, I think, is what really uh, they were going after because, again, you got Lamar Jackson in the division. You need edge guys that can play in space and tackle him in space if they're going to be the read man on those zone reads and power reads and and everything that they run and, and the QB keeps, all that kind of stuff, where it's one-on-one against edge players. You need guys that can move, and he can move. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Watt as a pass rusher. He's a good run defender, but in terms of being able to track and change direction with Lamar in space, I don't... I don't think he's that's his comfort level. I really want him going forward more than going backwards. And Dupree, I think, is a little bit more fluid than Watt, but still, I, I want both of them going forwards rather than backwards. Highsmith is somebody who I think can come in on first down, even though he is, quote-unquote, a speed rusher. But because of his fluidity, I think you can drop him a little bit more. I think you can use him to contain Lamar out the back door a little bit more on early downs and then bring in Watt or Dupree um, on third down at full juice and just let him go hunt. So I think that's the role that he's going to carve out for himself, at least early in his career, while he develops as a pass rusher. Uh, I can't remember how many years Dupree has left on his contract, but I mean, he's a lot better player now than he was early in his career, so I wouldn't be surprised if they keep him and just kind of roll three deep with these dudes. But again, that's a value pick that they get in the third round specifically to stop what the Ravens do, and uh, I think it was a great pick by them. He, You're right. He would not have lasted until the fourth round. There's, there's no way he would have been there at pick 124. And, and speaking of pick 124, because I think you and I were maybe a little split on this one, Anthony McFarland from Maryland, to me, is an excellent kind of compliment to the bigger backs that they already have in James Conner and Benny Snell. He is pure speed. He's not going to break any tackles like the other guys, or even like Jalen Samuels. Like He, he is going to be their fourth running back that gets five or six touches a game. But those five or six touches on any one of them, he can house call it as a receiver or as a runner. And I think that's going to be his role for them. As a fourth-round pick, if you can get that kind of explosive weapon where, again, he's threatening the edges, he's a good space player, if you can just kind of pop a few long touchdowns out of him that can change a game in one play, I personally am okay with spending a fourth-round pick on that. Yeah, it confused me a little bit. I I think your read on McFarland is correct in terms of what he brings and what he doesn't bring as a running back. I think people get... um, uh, (laughs) I think people get swayed by the siren song of speed, right? And he has it. He has juice. I remember you watching him and and texting me and saying, dude, have you watched him? He's got juice in capital letters, right? And he does. If he gets loose, probably not going to hold him, but he doesn't get loose all that often because his reads aren't great. He's not super physical. He's not a between-the-tackles guy, although Maryland tried to shove him in there a few more times than I would have liked. What I was really surprised by really came about because of insider trading, right? I'm a Bears fan. Last year in the seventh round, the Bears picked a guy named Kirith White out of Florida. 
uh, not University of Florida, but uh, Florida Atlantic, I think. And uh, Kareth White was on the Bears practice squad, and the Steelers did that rare thing in midseason where they say, okay, we're going to poach your practice squad player, and the Bears had the right to either match that and keep him on the team, promote him to the 53, or let him go. And they let him go uh, in in favor of keeping Ryan Nall, who's a bigger sort of more fullbacky type uh, out of Oregon State. And Kareth White proceeded to light it up for about four or five weeks in limited touches playing for the Steelers. And he's a very similar player to McFarlane. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have great vision. He's got tremendous speed. He's an excellent returner on special teams, but he is fast, fast, fast. He is 4-3-something fast. Low 4-4 fast. As a running back, that's a lot of juice. And the other thing about Kareth White is he's bigger than McFarlane. He's a solid like 205, and he doesn't really look that way on tape, but he's he's got some juice to him. So I really hoped he'd develop, but he's a seventh-round pick. I wasn't all that sorry about losing him. Sure enough, he goes to the Steelers and lights it up, and, of course, Bears Nation goes bananas. Why do we let this guy go? Blah, blah, blah. This is why Ryan Pace sucks. I get it. But I was really surprised that the very <laughs> next year, after saying, hey, we hit gold with Kirith White off somebody else's practice squad, and he came in, fit in our system, and gave us – some really good splash plays on not that many touches he gained some chunk yards for them to go out and spend a fourth round pick on a guy like anthony mcfarland who unless they see something sort of more for him it's almost like cloning a guy you've already got who's only one year into his pro career and even on the short lives of running back that's fresh that's brand new and you know a guy like kirith white was in a triple rotation right he was backing up singletary devin singletary um, and there was another back they had that was drafted as well. So he's in a three-back rotation in college. The the wear on the tires is is pretty light for a guy like Kareth White. So I was just sort of surprised what they saw in McFarland to go after him in the fourth round. Don't uh, I'm not upset by the pick, but again, if you have a plan to use him and sort of break that speed loose on the outside, get him well, not very many touches a game, a few touches a game, and hope he breaks one. That's cool. Seemed a little rich to go in the fourth, especially when you got a guy that demonstrated it last year, like Kareth White on your roster. Yeah, I, I just, I, I can see why they did it, and I totally understand your point about White. Um, in terms of value for the player versus what you already have, I think they they really just, they, they saw the juice that he had and the potential to control that contract for four years and, and the explosive, I mean, explosive plays you can generate for dirt cheap for the next four years. I think they were thinking, we, we can't turn down that kind of value for a guy that we don't think we're going to run any sort of tread off his tires um, who can come in and give us a, a really crazy explosive presence to complement the two big bangers we've got. I, I can see why they did it. And again, I had a much higher grade on McFarland than you did just solely for, uh, for that reason. It, it totally demanded the right system and situation, but I think he is in the right system and situation, so I'm really excited to see what he does. Um, uh, now, their other round four pick that they got through uh, multiple trades, it started with Miami and then went to Tennessee and then went to them. I actually did not get to watch Kevin Dotson. Did you? Yep. <laughs> yep, you're missing out. <laughs> I have out. no thoughts on him. I like Dotson um, a lot. I was, And when he landed with the Steelers, I was like, oh, <laughs> He is, what I, have in, what I have in my notes from the draft is he is such a Steelers O-line pick. The guy is a bulldozer, plays with great power. Um, showed up on Robert Hunt's tape, Robert Hunt, the, his more highly drafted teammate um, out of Louisiana. Uh, Dotson is just a road grader of a guard for Pittsburgh. 
and moves people. And look, Pittsburgh loves that on the interior. Guys that can anchor, have power. He's just built like a truck, man. He is so, so solid. And I think pretty underrated. So a lot of think people, maybe even Steelers fans, saw him get picked in the fourth and were like, oh, never heard of this guy. Like, I was actually pretty pleased. I thought that was pretty solid value for him. Like, when he got to the fifth, he was going to be very solid value. If he got any lower than that, just because of sort of lack of name recognition, he was going to be a steal in the sixth or seventh, right? Going in the fourth, I think, is actually pretty comparable and largely because of his fit in the Steeler system. Big fan of the pick, if you can't tell. I mean, if you can get a good swing guard just in case DeCastro or Wisniewski go down, I mean, he's not going to start over either of those guys because their offensive line is absolutely freaking loaded outside of maybe right tackle uh, is possibly their only real hole. But uh, you're kind of only as good as your worst offensive lineman, so I'll never say no to taking a high upside guard in round four, which is kind of the sweet spot for interior offensive linemen when you look at it. Now, we had that chat <laughs> the first day I met you. We were having that chat of, like, where's the place to take guards? And fourth round is, is really that kind of sweet spot for it. So again, I'll never say no to that pick. Um, now I did watch Antoine Brooks from Maryland and I thought he was going to go earlier than the sixth round. I was a big fan of that pick. He's 220 pounds. I mean, just completely rocked up. I know he ran four, six, four, which is probably the reason why he fell, but for a, a clear box safety, they can probably come in and play dime linebacker for you. I mean, he's explosive in short areas. Again, not not any long speed, but just with his build and his short area quickness, I think he can kind of play that hybrid linebacker safety role for you uh, that they had uh, Mark Barron playing when he was there. And uh, I, I think he's a perfect fit for that, especially for a six-round pick who most likely is going to be mostly relegated to uh, to special teams duty at first. Like, I, I love that pick for them. Yeah, Brooks is going to bring the boom for them on special teams near the line. That's what he did for Maryland. He's a teammate of Anthony McFarland's there as a Terp. And he's a hitter. My favorite thing about that was watching the combine, watching the DBs work out. And Deion Sanders, who doesn't really do any tape study, that's not Deion's game, right? He's just there to look at him and say what he thinks. And uh, this guy comes out to the drills and he goes, this guy right here, he doesn't even know his name, right? He goes, this guy right here. This guy's a hitter. This, this guy's here to hit. Like this, I think this he's guy right wrong. here. I think he's a hitter. I'm like, good on you, Dion. You nailed that one, right? 220 pounds, not even six feet tall. Um, just a blaze near the line. Broke up a, a lot of run plays, um, swing plays, bubble screens, stuff like that. Just a missile. Uh, and, you know, Steelers fans will love him for that. He's going to make his living on special teams for the beginning, um, but could move into a guy, again, uh, that role that they have, that they move Mark Barron into after he showed up in Pittsburgh. Very, very sort of primed for a player like Brooks with his skill set to be able to grow into that role, um, come in and just lay the wood in the short area, keep with people, again, over the short area where he has some speed, not stretching it out to the longer areas, the deep corners, uh, and just come in and hit right explode smaller like third receivers that are trying to block like that's a mismatch for brooks and defensive coordinators are always looking for mismatches so are offensive coordinators but brooks is going to give them an interesting weapon in those situations to be like go annihilate that guy and hit whatever's behind him and that's brooks's game yeah i i think it's a perfect fit for what they want out of him which is 
again, kind of that dime linebacker, you know, strong safety. He's not, well, he's not going to start at safety for them because um, they still have Edmonds there and they still have obviously Minka, who we talked about earlier. I mean, Edmonds isn't great, but I think in coverage, he's still better than Brooks. So he's kind of a pure box player, special team or linebacker type for them. So I think it's a, it's a good fit, especially for a six round pick. Um, their, their seventh round pick, Carlos Davis, defensive tackle out of Nebraska. I mean, he is tools, 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 and more tools. But very much like Lecky Fotu, I kind of felt like he was a diet version of Lecky Fotu. Instincts and length, not really there. Hand usage, not really there. He's kind of a human battering ram at this point. But how many 315 pounders do you know that run 4'8"? Not a whole lot. <laughs> so if you can mold that kind of athlete, get him to use his hands better, get him to recognize blocking schemes better. Um, again, he's a seventh-round pick, so it, it's it's not that big of an investment. But in terms of tools and potential, there's not a whole lot of seventh-round picks that I would take over him. Yeah, Kevin Colbert, the Steelers GM, he has a brand, right? And he's very good at it. And most teams, when you get down in this sixth and seventh-round area, you know, Mike Mack used to say it all the time. You go for the height, weight, speed guy, right? If you're going to play mm-hmm. the lottery ticket, you go for tools, right? And most teams think, hey, I'm going to grab that little bit small, super fast running back, or I'm going to grab that, you know, quarterback with a rocket arm and a two cent head, or I'm going to grab that wide receiver that's six five but doesn't know his left from his right. Not Kevin Colbert, right? <laughs> he's he's going to grab the big solid rock in the middle that happens to run a lot faster than most big solid rocks in the middle do. Um, but he believes, I believe, I would bet folding money that they strongly believe that they can take what Carlos Davis has and turn him into a Steelers interior defensive lineman. Like they, I bet they're very confident in that. And I wouldn't bet against him at this point, because again, um, maybe the second or third best position in their sort of draft conversion arsenal is that, you know, DT. And yeah, Cam if, Hayward, yep. Stephon Tewitt. I mean, they got a ton of them. Right, and they have for a long time. Like, that has been a hallmark of their program. So if I could say Carlos Davis could go anywhere with his sort of limited, um, well, the limits that you placed on him, which I think are pretty accurate, and succeed, Pittsburgh would be in the top five for sure. So great landing spot for him, even though it's a seventh-round pick. Um, if he works out, they get another one of those to sort of refill the interior defensive line. If he doesn't, he was a seventh-round pick. Yeah, we're, we're not talking about any sort of risky investment here, but potentially huge, huge payoff. So overall, again, the Minka pick, we're just going to call it a pick, was phenomenal. Love Chase Claypool. Totally see the fit for Alex Highsmith. A little bit split on McFarlane, but I can I think we can both see at least what their intent was. Uh, I didn't watch Dodson, but you did, and you love that pick, so I'll take your word for it. Because, again, you, you, you've watched a lot more of these guys than I have. Brooks, again, we could see the fit. Worst case scenario, special teams demon. And Carlos Davis, that classic, classic excuse me, late day three upside pick. Very, very solid class. A very Steelers-ish class. And one that I think, assuming Big Ben comes back healthy next year, will put them firmly in competition with Baltimore for the AFC North crown. So again, love what they did. Uh, now, I do want to say that today's show, guys, we have a sponsor. It's our first ever sponsor. Woo-hoo! You guys made it somehow. We, we got 100,000 downloads in the first seven weeks of this show. That is unbelievable. 
And, and so to kind of pay that off and all your support, we managed to land our first sponsor on the show, and that's the fine folks at Mac Weldon, makers of the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, and sweatpants, and more that you will ever wear. Not only does Mac Weldon's underwear, socks, and shirts look good, they perform well too. It's good for working out, going out on dates, just everyday life. They perform how you want them to perform, and they want you to be comfortable too. So if you don't like your first pair of underwear, you can keep it, and they will still refund you, no questions asked. And to show that Mac Weldon really does value its loyal customers, they've created the Weldon Blue Loyalty Program. And here's how that works. You create an account, which is totally free. Level one, you place an order for any amount, doesn't even matter, and you will never pay for shipping ever again. Level two, once you eventually purchase $200 worth of products from Mack Weldon over whatever period of time you want, not only will you continue to receive that free shipping, but you'll also start saving 20% on every order you make for the next year. And that also grants you access to new products before they're released to anyone else, as well as free gifts added to all of your future orders. I've personally already gone over that $200 mark myself, so I get the benefit of that. Luckily for me, I got the Ace hoodie, I got the Ace half zip, and two pairs of the Stratus active shorts because I kind of wanted something that was a little bit shorter than my basketball shorts and a little bit more flexible than my other workout shorts for when I'm doing kicks on the heavy bag in my garage. Uh, Anybody that does any sort of Muay Thai knows what I'm talking about. You really don't want any restrictive shorts, so I got those just for that. And EJ, I know that you got a bunch of stuff yourself. What did you get from them? Yeah, I got a ton of stuff, but I don't have that, you know, 85 degree weather typically that you do. So not as many shorts, but (laughs) look, they're known for their underwear. So I figured I'd try a couple of different kinds. I got their boxer briefs, which have an eight inch inseam. And I got their silver boxer brief as well, which is a little bit looser fit. Got a couple of different shirts for them. A warm knit waffle Henley, because look, uh, up here in the Northwest, I'm going to wear the heck out of that thing through probably six seasons. Our summer's only about two and a half months long. I got a couple of t-shirts because they looked extremely soft. I got a long sleeve and a short sleeve version. Then I got a pair of socks too because, look, it is getting warm up here. Long socks are not the thing when it's warm. And I got one of their uh, air knit high ankle socks. I'm excited to try them because I'll wear the heck out of those all summer long. Just because, I don't know, might have to look good on the podcast eventually if we start doing video, which a bunch of users requested. Got one of their silver knit polos. Um, always can use a good new polo shirt kind of things that usually when you wash them, uh, they start looking not so fresh. So a great new fresh polo is awesome. And yeah, I'm already over the 200 buck mark as well. So free shipping coming my way. Pretty excited about it. Yeah. And if you guys want to check out Mac Weldon for yourself, we have a special offer just for listeners of the Bootleg Football Podcast for supporting us in these first couple months after our launch. And that is 20% off your first order at MacWeldon.com with promo code bootleg. That is M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Promo code bootleg for 20% off. Again, thank you guys for listening and supporting. And with that, let's get back to this draft review because we got to talk about the Ravens who absolutely crushed it. I'm going to go through all their picks really shortly, but uh, <laughs> man, there's there's not very many classes that are better than this one. Round one, pick 28. Uh, they somehow got Patrick Queen to fall that late to them in the first round, which is insane. Round two, J.K. Dobbins, bruiser out of Ohio State. It's got a little bit of giddy up as well. Round three, Justin Matabuike, twitched up DT out of Texas A&M. Another round, uh, round three pick, Devin Duvernay, favorite of yours from Texas, wide receiver. Third, third round pick, Malik Harrison, who went one pick after a linebacker that we talked about earlier, Jacob Phillips. They got him in the third round from Ohio State. Uh, And then, wow, they had four 
third round picks. I'm just seeing that now. Pick 106. This, they is, got tier this is the Ravens gaming the system for compensatory <laughs> picks. There is none better than them, and they milked it this year. We're gonna we're gonna see dividends of this as we always do from the Ravens. Yeah, they got they got Phillips, the tackle out of Mississippi State. I had no idea they had four third round picks. That's insane. Uh, and then round four, they got Ben Bredesen, who's a favorite of ours from Michigan. Round five, Roderick Washington Jr., the defensive tackle out of Texas Tech, who I personally did not get around to watching. You might have uh, got to him when you were kind of crushing on defensive tackles a couple weeks before the draft. Uh, round six, they got from the Vikings via the Bills. They got James Prochet, who was a really excellent kind of slot receiver type that we saw down in Mobile. Round seven, again, from the Vikings via Miami. They got Geno Stone, uh, seventh-round pick for uh, safety at Iowa, who I watched. Uh, ironically, I, when I saw the corner that Denver took in the third round that uh, I still cannot pronounce his name. Oh, so Hemudia. I, I just call him Michael because I screw it up every single time. <laughs> uh, he, he flashed for me when I was watching Geno Stone, ironically enough. Uh, I, I wasn't super shocked that Stone went in the seventh round, but still for a seventh round pick, pretty good value. So let's kind of go through this one by one because they had a very large class and a loaded class at that. Patrick Queen going one pick after Brooks to Seattle, I think was one of the, the big topics of the first round of, of his fall for no real reason. And then, of course, going to Baltimore, one of the teams that I think never expected to get him and, and somewhere that I think he's going to play for 10 years and be a multiple-time All-Pro. Yeah, the Ravens have a thing, right? The Ravens are one of these teams that, uh, and they've been this way since Ozzy was there. Um, Eric DaCosta is sort of keeping the family business going strong in Baltimore, and that is drafting well. And the uh, so, as I said earlier, they sort of game the compensatory pick system really really well they end up with a lot of mid-round picks because of it because they're able to draft well let talent go and replace it but the other thing they do well there's two other things they do i guess in combination that make them so dangerous they always just pick football players and that sounds stupid ej it's the nfl draft of course they pick football players yeah but it's guys who are good at football right they don't pick projects they don't pick physical marvels they pick ball players they pick guys that already know how to do it that they can make even better they do it year after year after year and the way they do it is they wait they are so patient they're like big cat hunters right they just sit in the bushes all day and they're like i'll just wait till it comes close and then they nab it and they did the same thing with queen they did great work with dobbins duvernay was there for him again these are all gamers that when the lights come on these guys play big you said dobbins is a bruiser that's true he's built like that but he's got some juice watch the game against clemson man he's got a bunch of long yeah, runs. he ripped off a couple huge ones against clemson he's got a bunch of long runs and that's not the only game he did it in and that's against a top ranked sec very fast defense right that had simmons and um, muse, muse who runs and all those guys in the back and he outran yeah. all those guys so he's got more juice than you think and he's a perfect fit for the ravens if you're looking at the top four backs who were sort of closely grouped together but definitely had different styles. Dobbins was the Ravens one, right? And of course, Dobbins ends up on the Ravens because that's what always happens. So they know what they want. They give football players. They've got a lot of picks to start with because of their mastery of the compensatory pick system. And then they just wait. And if you look at their draft class every year when they're done, you go, damn it. (laughs) We got Queen and Dobbins and Matabuke and Duvernay and Harrison with their top five picks? 
right? Not to mention we'll talk about some of the guys down low, but like just with their top five, like those are all good guys, right? I I've talked about all those guys. Yeah. That's the Ravens every year, and they did it again this year. So Queen and Brooks are always going to be linked, uh, kind of maybe, unfortunately, for Brooks. Look, I think Brooks is a good player for Seattle. He definitely got picked high. We heard that another team in this division was actually looking at picking him in a very similar spot, right? They picked a bunch of other linebackers. That's a pretty interesting thing to come out on a team site. Not often you actually hear that on a team site, uh, but they actually said it. So, you know. Brooks's profile maybe a little bit elevated. Was he better than Patrick Queen in my eyes? Nope, nope, nope. Not gonna say nope. that. Patrick not Queen was one of my top inside linebackers in this draft. Depending on how you count Isaiah Simmons, he was the top linebacker in the draft. And the fact that he goes to a place like the Ravens, where they're gonna absolutely be able to utilize his gifts and have him sort of match wits against other foes in this division that have plenty of speed. We talked about the Browns roster. It's loaded. Obviously, you know, he's going to be facing off against a bunch of wide receivers from Pittsburgh, you know, linebacker, wide receiver. Yeah, that happens a lot these days in the NFL. Queen is equipped to handle that and the Ravens know it and they got him. And boy, that's just a great fit. The Ravens had some very unique problems to deal with going into this draft. And they were named Joe Mixon and Austin Hooper, you know, two guys that are notorious for absolutely slicing and dicing linebackers that can't keep up in in space. Mixon, I think, is one of the best do-it-all backs, if not the best do-it-all back in the league. Uh, You could argue Christian McCaffrey or or Alvin Kamara, but you you look at what Mixon has had to deal with in front of him and around him, uh, and, and he's been incredibly impressive to me. I think if you, if you give him a really good offensive line, Man, he's going to put up special numbers. He's a phenomenal running back. And and the Ravens honestly had nobody who could deal with him. I think uh, now that Cincinnati has uh, like ex- way upgraded their offense, I mean, that's we'll get to them in a second, but uh, Mixon's going to be an even bigger problem than ever. And so you need a guy like Queen who can cover him in space, who can run him down on the edges, who when Mixon, when Mixon excuse me, um, when he kind of does that Le'Veon Bell type stop and read and try to bait you into one gap so he can dart in the other, you need a guy who's patient enough that can sit there and just kind of play the waiting game and look say, look, wherever you go, I'm going to go, buddy. So pick a hole and let's tango. Like th- that's that's Patrick Queen. He's that kind of patient and explosive and fluid, and he's a perfect perfect anti-Joe Mixon, I'll say. Uh, and the same thing for Hooper, again, with that system in Cleveland. It's a lot of bootlegs. You need an instinctive linebacker that can process um, you know, and kind of read the ball, see when it's a fake, and then kind of just slam on the brakes and turn and explode and cover the tight ends that are working back the other way. You know, this division attacks linebackers like very few others do in the NFL, and you need a guy that can compete. And I think Patrick Queen is the perfect linebacker for this division. And then you come back and you get J.K. Dobbins, like you mentioned in the second round, who I, I think in this specific Ravens run game where we attack the edges with Lamar and we bang inside the tackles with everyone else. That's why they had Gus Edwards. That's why they had Mark Ingram. You know, we need bruisers, but JK Dobbins, if he can bang in the middle and then just break one tackle, he's got the juice to pay it off. Unlike Edwards and who, unlike Ingram, who I think at his age is kind of slowing down in terms of long speed as well. You know, Dobbins can can break a tackle and pay it off with a touchdown, whereas the others might pay it off with a 30 or 40 yard run. So I think he's going to be uh, an exceptional running back in that system. 
I think you can also have him work the edges a little bit more than the other guys if you want to spare Lamar from taking a few hits out there. You know, you can run more toss with him. You can run more outside zone with him, and he can actually rip off some big gains. It, it, it won't just be all Lamar out there. So he's a little bit more well-rounded than the other guys, too. I don't know if he'll get the majority of touches as a rookie because, again, their backfield is loaded, but I think he is going to average the highest yards per carry out of all their running backs. I wouldn't be surprised if he averages six, six and a half you know, yards per carry, which is insane. And uh, I, I think if you're a fantasy player out there, especially a dynasty player, draft J.K. Dobbins over pretty much every other rookie running back in this class because he's going to be hyper productive other than Clyde Edwards Hilaire and maybe maybe Jonathan Taylor there's no other rookie running back in this class that I want more more than J.K. Dobbins he's going to be phenomenal there uh, and then we kind of get to Justin Matabuike in round three which it's it's interesting I think you and I might be both in agreement on this one you can correct me if you're wrong where the value at pick 71 may be a little bit rich but in terms of trusting the coaching staff to develop the athlete, I'm all right with it. Yeah, I didn't have any problem with value. There are a lot of people that talked about my week even sliding into the end of the first round as sort of one of those wild card picks, which there always are every year. The last five picks in the first round are pretty variable. Just depends on what those teams like and what they need and what they think they're not going to get before really the end of the second round, typically. So there was talk of him in that area. I really didn't put him as a value there, but I figured he was a very solid sort of mid to late second round player. So getting him in third, I think it's fine. And again, he went to a place that is going to value the skills he has um, and sort of maximize those gifts in their system. So I I was fine with it value-wise. I was fine with it fit-wise. One thing about J.K. Dobbins that we didn't slide in there um, Lamar's going to love him because he is one of the best pass protecting running backs yeah, coming right. out of this class. And Ohio State has made a, a living on this. Zeke was another one. Zeke was tremendous pro level at pass protection at Ohio State. And I mean, pro ready day one, like he didn't need a lot of anything. You know, the running backs coach that got him was like, uh, yeah, you're good. Okay, we'll check that box. Moving on. <laughs> um, and J.K. Dobbins isn't quite as good, but he is better than just about anybody in this class at running back. And Lamar is going to love that. First time Blitz comes, you know, just unhinged and it's J.K. Dobbins' responsibility. He's going to get him, get enough of a piece of him that he's not going to hit Lamar just pure and simple. And Lamar's going to look down and be like, Thanks, bro. That was great. <laughs> Can you keep that Especially up? Especially when right? uh, Devin Bush is coming through the A gap, little Michigan man on Ohio State. Oh, there's going to no, be that'll some be nastiness a, to that. Yeah, one. <laughs> that'll be an antelope, antelope ram war there. But no, Dobbins's pass protection is noteworthy. Matabuke's fits great. Um, his attributes to sort of be that heavy end, penetrate occasionally. I think his ability to penetrate is a little overblown. It's not non-existent, but a lot of people are like, "Oh, he's a great pass rusher." I'm like, eh, "He's not." You know, can he rust the passer? He certainly can. And he made plays like that at Texas A&M. But he's not a great pass rusher. He is very stout against the run, and he understands gap leverage, keeping the uh, linemen off him, uh, being able to keep that one hand free. He's got skills to plug and play for downs right now. Is he going to develop as a pass rusher? He might. He's got some tools. And, you know, is there a better pro coaching staff than the Ravens to to get him going for that. Maybe a few, but it's a really solid fit for him. So I had no problem with him at pick 71. Yeah, you're, you're kind of just 
your, your trust in the coaches on this one, and I think the Ravens are one of the few coaching staffs in the league where it's like, all right, yeah, you guys have earned the trust. We'll just we'll, we'll take the athlete and let you work with them. Um, yeah, and the handshake inter- <laughs> between coaching and scouting is as strong in Baltimore as it is anywhere in the league. Yes, yeah, they're very highly synergistic. I'll say, like yep. the 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 front office will draft for what the coaches want. They don't just hand them players and say, go fix it. Like they won't draft somebody unless the coaching staff signs off on it. The coaching staff has to say, yeah, we can work with this kid. So when I say you're picking them and trusting the coaching staff, you're not just dropping them on their, uh, on their, on their laps and just saying, go fix it. Like you're, you're, you're talking to them beforehand and saying, can you fix it? And they say, yes. And then you say, okay, I'm going to go get them. And then they did. So again, I, I love how the Ravens are run. We constantly, almost every single episode now, I feel like, it's it's almost like our version of a swear jar. We we bring up how much we love how well the Ravens are run, but when they keep pulling out drafts like this one, can you really blame us? Nope. Um, <laughs> round three, pick ninety two. This might have been your favorite pick in the whole third round for any team. Devin Duvernay, in terms of fit uh, as a as a slot receiver that makes people miss, that can stretch you deep. He's a legit four four kid. Uh, as you mentioned, he's a gamer. He won't wow you in practice, but then on Sundays he'll end up with seven catches for 80 yards, and you say, when the hell did that happen? And, you know, he's he's one of those kids, man, where in a couple years we're going to look back in the third round and say, well, Baltimore did it again. And I, I love his fit next to Hollywood, uh, next to Boykin. Like the young receiving core that they're building there is is really something. Yeah, and again, the stable, right? Developing that stable, whether it's running backs or wide receivers or tight ends. When you're talking about those skill position players, what do you have and what do you need, right? And they've got something in Hollywood in terms of pure speed. Like, he can burn. He can get over the top. He can be that sort of Deshaun Jackson player for them. And Duvernay fills a very different role. It takes me back to what DJ and Bucky said uh, from you know the Move Sticks podcast about shooters versus scorers, and they were really talking about that in in the context of quarterbacks. Now it's a basketball analogy. Classically, NBA teams were looking for shooters, right? Guys that could stand back and stroke it, three pointers, deep two pointers, like that was the thing. And the the NFL sort of allegory or you know analogy to that is quarterbacks big strong tall rocket arm quarterbacks that can stand in the pocket and rip it and there's not a ton of those guys right and the nba has shifted as well going away from shooters and saying hey now we've got guys that can just score they can shoot a little bit they can drive a little bit they can dunk if they need to you know they can change up hands get points for other guys is it shooters or scorers right is it just that classic do it one way or is it find a way and make points and Duvernay is a scorer at wide receiver if I've ever seen one. He's not a classic shooter, right? Run down the boundary, jump up, high point the ball, you know, big oo from the crowd. He's going to do those little inside slants that turn into 50-yard gains because he's a tough guy. He is not just a track star. He is a football player. Let's let's get real serious about that. Like he has track speed and he is a great track athlete. He is not a track star with football pads on. He is a football player who happens to be really fast. Um, but again, his you know in practice, eh, Senior Bowl didn't have the greatest practices. But guess what happened at the Senior Bowl when the game happened, right? <laughs> Yep. He had one of the best <laughs> games. Of, he had one of the best games of any wide receiver in attendance, if not the best game. And that's not how it looked in practice at all. 
you've heard us talk about Michael Pittman. You've heard us talk about Chase Claypool. You've, you know, KJ Hill even had some practices where you stood out and went, oh, okay, let, that guy's got something, right? There's all these guys at the Senior Bowl. And DuVernay did not stand out in practice at all. But guess what? When the lights came on and it counted, DuVernay had a big game. And he's going to do it because he plays that integral role that they don't really have in the Baltimore wide receiving core right now. And you're going to see it's just one more guy that can make an explosive play. Like, it's not fair. <laughs> Lamar at quarterback, already not fair. We've talked a lot about that. That's that's understood. You had Dobbins, who has the banger ability and absolutely can run between the tackles and does it very well. But if he gets loose, he's got a little bit more juice and he's going to be tough to catch. Not saying he's going to outrun every NFL secondary, but he's going to give them a run for their money and you're going to get longer gains out of it. And, you know, you got Hollywood. Okay, well, <laughs> good luck playing shell on that. You know, you put you single him up. You got to single somebody up. You single him up. They're tight ends look well documented as, as in terms of how productive they are and then you throw in a wild card like duvernay right what do you do with that yeah. as a defensive coordinator Good luck. yeah you put him in the cracks you run some of those little slant sort of tunnel screen um little slot comeback stuff forget it like you just can't cover everything and he just does something else that's more difficult plus he's physical enough to run you over as a wide receiver it's a little short They're going to get him involved foot. in the run game, too, on, like, sweeps and stuff. And oh, then... yeah. No, some of his best highlights at Texas were, you know, wide receiver sweeps, right? Pitches, right? Come back, do a little misdirection play action to the back, have the wide receiver coming the other way, toss it to him, and whoops! That's what <laughs> that's what 10-900 speed looks like when you put it in pads. He had a bunch of those plays. Um, I, I got continually drilled by Texas fans about... Um, Grant Delpit, he's like, well, made Grant Delpit look slow. Uh, you know, he kind of did, but he didn't do that all the time. Again, it was highlights versus consistent. But look, he had a very productive time at Texas, and it was when the lights are on, right? Very few drops, very solid wide receiver, and that speed again, right? That speed's going to put huge pressure on the defense. So for the Ravens, just one more token on that offense that is already hard to deal with, and now you add this? Like, ah, ouch. And yeah, I talked a little bit earlier about how the Steelers were were building, or yeah, with with Chase Claypool, how they were building for the Ravens' defense. Well, the Ravens' defense was building for the Steelers' offense too, because they drafted a 240-pound banger late in the third round of Malik Harrison to deal with James Conner and Benny Snell. And I think it is a perfect complement to Patrick Queen, who's a lot faster and more fluid to get a true Mike linebacker like Harrison that can just absolutely destroy the run game between the tackles and let Patrick deal with everything else. Yeah, this is this is sort of two binary stars, right? This is Queen to do one thing and Harrison to do the other thing. They both do a bunch of things that cross over pretty well, but Harrison's a big dude. He is sizably bigger He's than huge. Patrick Queen. And he brings it. There are big guys that play small and small guys that play big. Harrison's a big guy that plays big, right? He's up in the 240s, high 240s. He's well over six feet tall. He's a little sort of, I don't want to say high-waisted, but highly built. Like a lot of that mass is up top on him. He is not slight yeah. in the upper body at all. He's like Bernardrick McKinney. Yep, except faster. I think faster in a straight line. And I like Bernardrick McKinney. Um his limitation is lateral movement. That's why he went down in the third and not in the second or the first because he is a big guy that can bang and does, like takes good angles, wraps, and he's one of those guys that you enjoy watching play linebacker because when he hits people, they go backwards. 
right? Yep. He erases people because he brings all that mass and he can strike. There is an underrated um, tenet to playing linebacking or ability or natural instinct. I don't know what you want to call it, but the ability to strike with force. And Harrison is one of those guys that the first time you see him crack the pads, you go, ooh. <laughs> that guy can hit like, that's that guy can strike he moved that guy right that's harrison and that's the perfect compliment to queen running around causing all kinds of havoc super fast a pretty good tackler in his own right but is definitely going to keep up with the fleeter of foot offensive players that baltimore faces harrison's not slow especially not in a straight line he can get to the edge but man when he hits he brings it and that is so ravens right yeah, and again, Queen's going to deal with everything that he can't. You know, we're we're not asking him to man up on Joe Mixon in space. That's Pat's job. We're not good asking thing him, too. <laughs> yeah, you know, we're not asking him to man up on tight ends. That's that's either going to be Patrick's job or Chuck Clark, and he's not going to be covering in the slot. That's Tavon Young. He, he's they, their secondary is loaded. Their pieces around him are loaded. He has one job, one job, and that's stop Benny Snell, stop James Conner, stop Joe Mixon in between the tackles stop Kareem Hunt in between the tackles, you know, Chubb, all these amazing running backs in the division. Stop him on first down. Everybody else can handle third down. And and I, I love that pick for them. Perfect fit. Um, what did you make of Tyree Phillips as their fourth third round pick? I think it might have been a compensatory pick because it was at 106, yep. which, which I think is compensatory. In terms of essentially getting a pick for free and then picking up a swing tackle, who I don't imagine is going to start because they have Ronnie Stanley and, and they have uh, Orlando Brown, one of the better tackle duos, if not the best tackle duo in the league. He, so he's not going to start. But what do you make of him as a swing tackle, potentially a jumbo tackle, if they bring him out there? Uh, I think that's what he is. I didn't watch him extensively. I have seen him. And I think he is that third tackle. He's a big dude out of Mississippi State. And he fits that sort of, again, Ravens big dude model, right? There were people that were really shied away from Orlando Brown, right? Because he ran so poorly famously. And they were like, nope, we'll take him. <laughs> Look at his film. He doesn't yep. often get moved. We're fine with that oh, in our system. 36-inch arms. Don't right? mind if we do. That's right. <laughs> and again, we talked about the Ravens being those sort of patient hunters. And they, they were the same on that pick. Um, Tyree Phillips, I don't know that has that value for them. But again, uh, there's sort of drop-offs and tiers in the tackle class. And if there were a place for him to go where, again, he doesn't have to start. He doesn't, I don't think, have that kind of talent right now. But he can sit behind two established starters and become that, oh, we need you on the jumbo package uh, for the goal line. Or, oh, you're going to be the the primary backup to Orlando Brown on that right side. Um, You know, I'm... I'm fine with it. Uh, I don't feel sort of one way or another about it. I know some people felt the value was a little inflated. Look, a lot of tackles went off the board early, and if you were going to get one, you had to go get one. They had other picks coming after that. They'd already had quite a few really good picks before that. You know, your draft class could be possibly made with your first five players. Um, You know, they did what they thought they had to do to get a player that they liked in their system. I'm certainly, again, given their track record with sort of those heavy offensive tackles, I'm not going to go against him on this one. Especially since most of their system, in terms of pass protection and everything like that, it's all play action. So it's very similar to to in Cleveland uh, with Nick Harris, where we're, we're worried about him in pass protection. Like, it's it's the same kind of thing. If it's all play action and they're not, you know, rushing off the edge because they have to play their run keys so much, he's he's going to be a lot more protected in that system than he would otherwise. 
And again, he's not even going to be starting. So he, he's got time to develop. Worst case scenario, I think they use him like the Steelers use Zach Banner, where he, he just comes in for that uh, extra offensive tackle. Um, and, and he's going to be a star on short yardage, I think, because, again, he's 6'5", 330, just a hulking human being. And if he's not all the way there in pass protection yet, it doesn't really matter. Again, late late third-round pick, compensatory pick, that's not even going to start. I'm, I'm totally okay with it. Um, again, another guy who's not going to start, but the, the value on this one I think was better. Pick 143 in the fourth round, Ben Bredesen from, from Michigan, who, again, is another just absolute mauler. He's a, he's a Ravens kind of, of guard. We saw Yonder retire, so it's possible he can compete with Ben Powers for that starting role on the right-hand side. Um, I don't know if he'll challenge Bozeman for the left, but I guess it's possible there too. Again, I'm not sure if he'll win either of these jobs outright as a rookie, but I think by maybe 2021 he can compete for it. At worst, he'll be a swing guard for them as a rookie and a damn good one at that. But system fit-wise, in terms of power, blowing people off the ball on double teams, uh, which he was very good at doing with Cesar Ruiz. Uh, I, I really like the fit there. It's a great value pick. It's another one you look down the Ravens draft board and you're like, they got Bredesen? Yeah. <laughs> In the fourth? You don't even realize it until the draft's over. And yeah, you're and like, you're like, like oh, of course they got Bredesen, right? He's that Michigan guy that plays offensive line like all the other Michigan guys that play offensive line. I swear they just pop him out of tubes up there in Michigan. And, you know, <laughs> there's three teams in the Big Ten, you know, and, and lots of teams in the Big Ten are going to argue with me, right, about this. But, you know, they produce linemen, right? Iowa, we've seen a really good run of Iowa linemen recently. There's a lot of them playing in the league, and for good reason. Kirk French does a great job with his offensive line program up there. Michigan is, you know, super-duper solid. And I swear when I watched Ben Bredesen before the Senior Bowl because he was going to be there, and I was like, he's that Michigan guy that plays the interior offensive line. He's all of them, right? We are legion. Yeah. They just show up and do the thing. <laughs> we are legion. <laughs> and it's that's it right they that's what they do and ben bredesen's that guy and he ended up with the ravens and i was i think what you said about him not starting this year is perfect but if i asked you to bet folding money that two seasons from now so you know three seasons from his rookie draft he's in his third season as a pro is ben bredesen the starting guard for the ravens kind of odds would you lay me (laughs) probably (laughs) probably yeah better than average maybe i wouldn't give you a really good line on that because i bet it's gonna happen because it always happens right oh fourth round guard from three years ago yeah oh he's a value pick oh yeah he's he's from michigan oh yeah i can see why that happened right that's what people say in hindsight when it happens you go they did it again they did it again. They got that guy that, yeah, started next to Cesar Ruiz and he showed up in tape. And he's just really solid. There's nothing terribly flashy about his tape. And that's a compliment a lot of times when you're watching offensive line. And Ben Bredesen's tape was really solid. It's like, yep, he did the thing. Yep, he understands that. Yep, he can execute that. Oh, yep, look at that. Yeah, yeah, he pretty much checks all the boxes. He's not an athletic marvel. A lot of the guys that come out of Michigan on the offensive line aren't. But even the guys that go down in the 6th and 7th, John Runyon Jr., right? Played in Michigan, and you're like, well, I bet he ends up as a swing something on some NFL team. And sure enough, he got drafted, and he probably will. It's They just know how to do it at Michigan. I totally missed this. Uh, when did the Ravens sign DJ Fluker? Uh, after the Hawks kicked him out after the draft. Damn. So, 
man. Okay, well, then Fluker's probably going to start at right guard, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he's he's another super Ravens so they, type. Like, they just have feet. a million guards now. Sort of. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the thing is there's two ways that the Ravens get picks. One is by letting them go because they've got three more guys in the pipeline behind them and they're just waiting for a spot to plug one of them in. It's like having shiny new toys all the time. And the other one is, oh, you had an injury to your starting guard? Like a week before the season, what do you want to give us? Oh, you want to toss us a fourth rounder for, oh, take your pick. You know, reminds me of the droid salesman in Star Wars, right? Well, we got this one. We got this one. We got this one. This one does this, right? And they, you know, give them away for a fourth or fifth round pick. And the next year, you're like, oh, they had four, three round, round three picks. They had three fourth round picks. They had two fifth round picks. Like, how did that happen? Oh, yeah, it was because they gave away that guard like two weeks before the season because they had three more right behind him. Um, yeah, the Ravens know how to do it in terms of draft value. God, they, they, it's funny because in the beginning of the offseason, guard was kind of like their biggest need when, when Yonder retired, and now mm-hmm. they have more than they know what to do with. Yeah. It's amazing how that works out for them every freaking year. Yeah. God. It's, uh, you know, people say better lucky than good. Well, the Ravens are, you know, lucky Both. because they're good. <laughs> yeah. yeah oh, God. And we're not even done yet. <laughs> No, round we still, five, we still got one player I really want to talk about. Broderick Washington Jr. I'm not going to do any kind of justice to. Uh, I saw him on Jordan Brooks's tape. Again, didn't stand out to me, uh, but that doesn't mean that, you know, I, I, certainly I didn't scout him very heavily. The Ravens staff, I'm sure, did. And, you know, again, am I going to bet against the Ravens on an interior defensive line pick? Mm, I'm probably not at this point. But I don't have a lot to say about Broderick Washington Jr. because he wasn't one of the guys I scouted. Cool, because neither do I. But well, there we go. I think we both have a lot to say about James Prochet. Yep, <laughs> that's the guy. Six. Yeah, we got to see him oh. at the Senior Bowl. A uh, little bit undersized receiver out of SMU. Um, people, uh, people pretty much primarily say, oh, he's a slot guy because he's not super tall. And there were a lot of super tall guys in this draft. He's not super fast. Uh, there were a lot of super fast guys in this draft. Um, but when you go back to his tape, they played him outside at SMU quite a bit. Um, he got deep uh, quite a bit, I would say, uh, more than pure slot guys tend to. Now, it depends on the scheme. Some schemes send the, the slot guy deep regularly. Um, Prochet got deep from both both spots. Um, very crafty, uh, very skillsy player, even if you're not going to say toolsy, if you're talking about height, weight, speed being tools and uh, his ability to cut and run routes and understand leverage and soft spots and zones. He's a very crafty player. Um understands all those things very well and his trump card that really stood out to me when i went back and watched him actually after the senior bowl because i couldn't watch all the wide receivers before the senior bowl because there were so many of them uh, is his hands he probably has Mm -hmm. the best hands in this draft um and lamar's gonna love him because he's amazing he's a little bit faster than you think he is again very crafty with routes and space knows how to get open knows how to get off the jam and he catches everything, and I mean flypaper everything, totally blanketed on the sideline, 20, 25 yards down the field, can't even see sunlight, and comes up with the ball underneath the DB's arm, like, regularly. It just, it doesn't stop on his tape. He catches everything. So, to get a guy like that in the sixth round, we talked about it this year. Wide receiver was super loaded. Guys with starting talent were going to go in the fourth, in the fifth, in the sixth. And I could absolutely see Prochet probably not displacing any of the Ravens starters right now, 
but in their four wide receiver sets, getting a lot of looks oh, he, because he's going to be on third down. Guarantee that's it. right. Because Lamar is going to start looking to him being like, man, every time I toss up anything to him, man, he comes down with it. Right. We end up with the first down. We move the change. We stay on schedule. Right. And that's what a guy like Prochet does. And then occasionally, you know, they're going to run Hollywood short and Prochet deep. EJ, what are you talking about? Yep, it's going to happen. I guarantee you, watch next year. Prochet's going to go deep. Hollywood's going to go short. They're going to double Hollywood because all that speed, they're going to let Prochet go because who? Some little guy from SMU? Were, oh, touchdown. Damn it. Yeah, there's the deep post. <laughs> you know, it's going to happen. He's good at it. He is a crafty receiver down the field, and even if he is not a, you know, climb the ladder and high point the ball, he comes up with it like hyper consistently. He is going to be a fan favorite um, as sort of that underdog, but he's really not. He's really you really shouldn't look at him as an underdog because he is a he's a very skilled wide receiver. Getting him in the sixth, two oh one overall, robbery. Yeah, he's going to be one of those guys where he catches four balls a game, maybe three, mm-hmm. um, depending on the matchup. But literally all of them will be first downs. Yep, all of them. Stats will never blow you away, but you can't win without those kind of guys. You you really can't. He's like Kenny Stills in Houston, where Kenny, he might catch three or four a game, but I swear to God, all of them are big plays, and Deshaun Watson cannot live without him. He, he's that kind of receiver. Yeah, he's going to be Lamar's buddy, for sure. These these guys, these you know smaller guys with great hands, understand routes, who aren't sort of super, super gifted athletes, but are still pretty good athletes. Like, he's not slow, and he's very quick. Yeah. Um, I, again, not the quickest in this class, but he's... You know, he's not not quick. It's enough. Yeah, it's enough on the field to get open. And, um, you know, he's going to have to figure out pro coverage, uh, all receivers coming into the league do. And he's not going to be, like, hyper productive the first year from an overall standpoint in terms of yards from scrimmage or touchdowns or points if you're talking about fantasy. But he's going to be that guy that if you watch the Ravens a lot, it's going to be like, man, that, I remember that guy making quite a few, like, important catches and fourth it, down you're up by five points it's third mm-hmm. and seven you can salt the game away guess who's getting the ball yeah just that lob dude. it up to him he's gonna find a way he he's that guy so um i, I are we in agreement that geno stone will make the roster only on special teams and probably, probably yeah i knew a lot of people that were really high on stone not necessarily because of stone but maybe scouting the helmet a little bit and saying oh all these other Iowa safety players have been really good all these other iowa secondary players have been really good i think I people like, really wanted him to be desmond king yeah, and he really wasn't. And, and you know, Desmond really was a was a very solid player. I was a little bit low on Desmond, but I was like maybe top end of the third, bottom end of the second on Desmond. And I knew a lot of people are like, he's a lock for first rounder, he's a lock for the top of second. You know, I was like, oh, you know, I could see him going in bottom of the second, top of the third. I'd be totally comfortable with that. And a lot of people thought I was low on Desmond King. And look, he's been a very good pro. Geno Stone's not Desmond King. So um seventh might be a little bit low. Like, you might have a little bit more talent than that. Um, I think he probably does, but in terms of where he fits within the Ravens, you know, if you're talking about the Ravens roster, Ravens scheme, um, he's a guy that's going to have to earn it purely. He's got nothing promised to him as a seventh rounder. And, you know, he could impress or he could wash out and, and disappear from the league as, as many seventh rounders do, um, you know, down the board. And I don't think anybody would cry great tears about that. Um but he's I just got a think chance. with as much single high, as much single high as they play, I mean, yeah. he doesn't have the range for free safety. Nope. nope. Um, he would be competing with Chuck Clark, uh, I guess, for the strong safety role. Uh, I, he's not as good as Tavon Young and Nickel. Like, Mm-mm. I don't really see a path to him 
darting. Yeah, he's not as versatile as King was. That was one of King's best selling points that I sort of undersold a little bit was the fact that he had that versatility, that sort of multi-position versatility. Um, not as much as a guy like Minka, but that he definitely had some of that in his game. Um, Geno Stone doesn't show me that as much. I think he's a more limited safety. I think he's definitely with his range and his size. He's not huge. Um, you know, closer to the line. He's going to have to earn whatever he gets. And, you know, more power to him if he does. I hope he does, right? I hope all these guys succeed. Uh, but, you know, again, as to, like, where you pencil him in or does he even necessarily make the 53 or is he a practice squad guy? Eh, not really sort of betting on any of that right now. Yeah. But overall, as we said, the Ravens had a phenomenal class. Queen yeah, top and to Dobbins. bottom. I mean, again, even in the yeah. first five, just loaded, loaded, loaded. Like Queen, Dobbins, Matt Buque, De- uh, Devin DuVernay, and, and Malik Harrison. Like, you could stop there. And then they'd go ahead and add, you know, Bredesen, Phillips, Prochet, guys down the board that could really be significant ads for this team. And that's just a, you know... The draft is an inexact science. We all know that. If you have a 30 to 40% hit rate, you're doing really well. It's hard to look at that class and say that they won't at least meet that standard. It's it's old money getting richer off dividends compared to the <laughs> Cincinnati Bengals striking big in the lottery oh, and hoping that, that they that they invest wisely. That might be the wanna, best segue that you've ever laid down. I just got to say that. that was, it's true, though. <laughs> it is true. It's also true that that was a tremendous segue. And hats off to you, sir. That was that was fantastic. Well, here here's what the Bengals got in that lottery when they finally hit the Powerball, landed Joe Burrow first overall, one of the better quarterbacks we've seen coming out in the last decade plus, uh, probably second only to Andrew Luck, according to a lot of people, myself included. I I don't know if you had him as as number two to Luck or if you had anybody else above him over the last decade, but that's that's how I that's how high I was on him. Uh, and then you have T Higgins in the second round, where there were some guys that I had a slightly higher grade on, but I think pairing him with Burrow when you look at his skill set again makes a lot of sense. Totally fine with that pick. And I am gonna kind of go a little bit out of order here because I want to group all of their young linebackers together. Logan Wilson in the third, Akeem Davis Gaither in the fourth, and Marcus Bailey in the seventh. That is a starting linebacking core that's going to grow up together and play together for a very long time. Fifth round pick, Khaled Kareem, favorite of the show since forever. Uh, And then round six, Akeem Adeniji, offensive tackle out of Kansas. So they only had seven players here, but all of them, or at least most of them, high impact players. We'll start with Burrow, uh, and I do want to ask you, did, other than Andrew Luck, or even maybe not even Andrew Luck, did you have any grade on a quarterback higher than Joe Burrow since 2012? I'm I'm as sure about Burrow as I can be about quarterbacks coming out of college. Um, and if you asked me to bet on somebody not sucking at the quarterback position, <laughs> and people go, well, he's a first-round pick. Fine, go back and look at all the first-round picks at quarterback in the last 10 years. Go back, look at them all. There's a bunch of them that sucked. <laughs> There's a bunch of them, easily more than half, that you would not pick anywhere near the first round again. Easily more than half, right? So betting on a first-round quarterback is not a sure thing, right? Are you telling but, me that E.J. Manuel wasn't a lock? I'm telling you that that pick didn't look good when they made it and didn't look good after that, right? Um, Lots of people do things, uh, even at the high end, you know, EJ Manuel a little bit farther down, 
even at the high end of round one. Um, it's questionable, right? We had we had high end of round one this year. You're not super sure about Justin Herbert, right? We're going to talk yep. about that when we get to the AFC West, but you're not sold on that. If I asked you, like, if you will bet your life savings on, you know, again, a high round quarterback working out, look, Justin Herbert, high round pick in the first round. Are you sure he's going to make it? If you give me Herbert or Burrow, right? That's not the same stratosphere. Like Burrow, I am, like I said, as sure as any quarterback coming out of college for a long time. And it's because he does a multitude of things well. And this draft, as all high QB drafts do, hinges around Burrow. If Burrow's great, this is a great draft. If Burrow absolutely bombs out, I don't think he will. Um, look, we stand for Burrow on this podcast with good reason. You did a film room about him, with good reason. Um, you know, when I sat at your house and we watched all the LSU tape, I was like, watch the fact that he's a psycho killer. And you're like, what are you talking about? I was like, if you miss him, <laughs> if you rush and you miss him, he will kill you every time. Like 90% of the time, he does the exact right thing that will hurt the most if you miss him. Lots of guys. Lots and lots he's and Thanos, lots. He's Thanos, man. Should have aimed for the head. That's right. That's <laughs> right. And a lot of guys in college will not do that. Like, you miss them, and they may make a play, but it's usually by busting out with their feet. They get skittish, their eyes come down, and, and maybe they're great athletes, and they dodge a couple guys, and they pick up 15, 20 yards. And that's a great play in college. Certainly keeps your offense on schedule. Not Burrow. You come at him, and he's good at moving in the pocket. It's one of his many strengths. If he, you know, slips, you're, forget it. Eyes up, where's the guy that can crush them the worst? I got that guy. And he does it so, so often. That's my psycho killer analogy for Burrow. But um, no, he's great. I'm glad the Bengals just stayed there, didn't entertain trading the pick. They need some quarterback stability. I think he can provide it. They provide him with T. Higgins as a weapon right there in the second. Um, T. Higgins is going to go straight to doing, I, I said, will be put to immediate use doing what he does best, snaring those big throws down the sideline. Big, tall guy, high points the ball. Um, yeah, did it in college, is going to do it, um, again, wearing orange for the Bengals. Um, Burrow's going to like him for that, and I think they'll find the rest of their targets elsewhere. As we talked about, he's got a very good running game uh, in Mixon. Uh, it's not like that offense is bereft of talent besides Joe Burrow, which is often Tyler the Boyd's way. there, too, and A.J. Green, obviously. Yep, yeah, and I think largely Higgins, they're hoping Higgins becomes that um, – grows into that A.J. Green role, not necessarily as a complete receiver because I don't think he is as complete uh, as A.J. Green was coming out or or that it'll develop to be that way, but really that A.J. Green down the sideline role that he's played really well. I think they drafted Higgins to take that slice of A.J. Green's game as he you know sort of eventually fades into the sunset. And after that, they just pick linebackers, right? We can talk yeah. about Khalid Kareem because he was the sneaker in the middle of all that, but they got Logan Wilson, Akeem Davis Gaither, and Marcus Bailey, three very different players. Wilson I talked about on our 10 Defensive Gems episode, big favorite of mine in this draft. New school linebacker out of an old school school in Wyoming, but great range, tremendous eyes and instincts. Love both of those things and can hit when he gets there. We talked about that striking ability. He's got that as well. Uh, but he just multiplies that with the fact that, yes, he's fast, but he knows where he's going, and he starts there early. And if he's half a step ahead of you, he's going to get there. He's got the range to cover people. He's got the physicality to stop people. He understands gaps and which one's his. Really, really high on Logan Wilson as sort of the best all-around linebacker uh, that they picked. And then Akeem Davis-Gaither, 
we talked about as being a different kind of linebacker, right? Almost more of that hybrid linebacker safety. And there are quite a few of those in this draft. Um, but again, we talked about with the Ravens pairing being sort of binary stars that Wilson's going to do one thing and Keem Davis Gaither's going to do another. And I think the Bengals are on that same model. Yeah. I When I look at this linebacking core, they built it specifically to handle the Baltimore Ravens. Um because that is the run game that dominates the division right now, that they are the team that dominates the division right now. You got to beat Baltimore if you want to have any shot. And when I look at the different skill sets that they brought in, Wilson, I think, can play Sam or Mike. Bailey, I think, can play Sam or Mike. Um, I would probably want Wilson doing it more just because he's a better player. Uh, I think he can play... Uh, from sideline to sideline, again, phenomenal instincts. He can make the calls. He's he's really good in zone coverage over the middle. I, I I would probably prefer him to be in that role. And then Bailey as Sam, I think, again, he's somebody who's highly instinctual, tackles everything, not super fast, but that's why you have Akeem Davis-Gaither, who's He's your kind of hybrid safety linebacker where, you know, if you want to match up with Mark Andrews, that's your dude. If you want to match up with, uh, you know, Anthony McFarlane, you know, running toss to the edge, that's your guy. If you want to put him at overhang to handle Lamar on the edge, keeping it, that's your guy. Uh, if you want to handle Kareem Hunt lined up in the slot, that's your guy. Or any of the tight ends that Cleveland has, that's your guy. Like he is the eraser for all of these space and edge weapons in this division. While you have Wilson making all the calls, you have uh, Bailey tackling everything, you have DJ Reader and Geno Atkins just soaking up blocks like no tomorrow and having Wilson and Bailey kind of play off that. You still have Carlos Dunlap, as old as he is, I think is still a good edge threat. Um, you have Sam Hubbard, who I think can make some plays every now and then. Is he great no but I think he's okay as a starting end you still have Carl Lawson there who when he's healthy I think is a good defensive end um, certainly one of the more efficient pass rushers on that team when he's healthy um, and then they also drafted I, I kind of want to fast forward a little bit because we are running quite long on the show we're over two hours now so I don't want to make people fall asleep but we really loved the Khaled Kareem pick in the fifth round too we both thought he was going to go a lot earlier than that and I think who better to learn from than Carlos Dunlap in terms of how to use length and power to win as a pass rusher. That's what Khalid Kareem does, and I think Dunlap is a perfect role model for him. Yeah, when you look at landing spots and where people landed and, and again, who they're going to learn from, how they fit in the system, I really like Kareem. I thought he was underrated. To get him in the fifth round is really serious value. The amazing thing about him is he's got great two-way value. He's a pretty good rusher. He doesn't get home in terms of sack numbers, but that Notre Dame defense a lot of times on the pass rush, Khalid Kareem was the stir that just, you know, he was the straw that stirred that drink. He was the guy wrecking stuff and other people like Aquara mm-hmm. were cleaning it up. And he was the guy that just broke stuff. And I think of Dunlap the same way as a guy that doesn't necessarily get home all the time, doesn't necessarily have huge numbers. But when you look at it, he's the guy that we talked about stunts earlier with Jordan Elliott, right? He's the guy that pushed just that little bit inside that squeezed oh, the back. Oh, he's so good on stunts. Yep, that stuffed him just that little bit. So some other linebacker came in and cleaned him up, right? Kareem's got good burst, great power, 
and really understands and is the guy sort of wrecking shop on the defensive line. And I think of Dunlap as the same way as kind of a, you know, get your hands dirty kind of a player that can clean it up. Had, you know, better length than Khalid Kareem. But I think Kareem got undersold generally in this draft and getting him in the fifth was was great value. I want to go back to Marcus Bailey for a minute because I think they picked Bailey in the seventh round, linebacker out of Purdue, if you haven't heard of him, uh, to back up Wilson at the mic. I think Bailey's another mic. And if Bailey was healthy, because he was healthy for a while, the reason he dropped so far in the draft, we're talking him up as incredibly skilled, and I think he was. The reason he dropped so far in the draft is he had injury, had major, major leg injury, and it wasn't his first one. So that red flags him sort of automatically as a medical I don't know if he's healthy. Tough year for medical checks. That pushes him even farther down the board. But if you watch the healthy tape of Marcus Bailey, I had him as an even better linebacker than Wilson. And you've heard me talk about Wilson. I love Wilson. I had Bailey a tick ahead of him when he was healthy. He's not healthy, so he dropped a lot. But boy, if they take that seventh round lottery pick and get lucky and Bailey stays healthy, you know, a la, I don't know, Frank Gore, (laughs) right? Yeah. They're gonna have, they're gonna have hit the jackpot. If he doesn't, if he bombs out, look, it was a seventh round pick. You took a medical injury risk, and he didn't stay healthy. No huge surprise, no huge loss. Um, but if he does, he is an incredibly instinctual, talented linebacker. Maybe a tick slower than Wilson physically, but maybe even a tick faster mentally. Um, really, really good player that very few people know the name of because he dropped so far and he was injured. So he's sort of out of the pre-draft process and didn't get a lot of highlights, but don't sleep on Bailey. Um, Khalid Kareem's great. And then Hakeem Adenji, we got to see at the senior bowl. I would, I would call him athletic and toolsy and, you know, sort of needing development. Other than that, um, how would you talk about a Adenji, game? Uh, probably a swing tackle. I don't think he's a starter. No. Um, <laughs> I would hope not. I would hope that your team is not starting Hakeem Adenji in the pros next year. Uh, that would be it, it, that, that would be, be a, a sad state of affairs. Idea. Yeah, you would you would be giving up some things. He he didn't have the most consistent senior role, but he you know athletically he's all there, right? Um, yeah, he has everything you it's need. Everything else, that's right? The problem. Right. It doesn't all come together. But if you're looking for a, again, if you're trusting your line coach and looking for a toolsy player to develop, and the best you can do is a sixth round pick. You could do a lot worse than Hakeem Adenji. Like he's got potential to develop. It's not one of those guys. It's like, well, we just grabbed him, and you know, maybe he'll make the practice squad. That may be the thing, but I could see Adenji working into it because, again, he's not not gifted, right? He has he has lots of tools. I do want to ask you one question because I forgot to ask you before. And since okay. since this linebacker trio, I think other than Burrow is is the highlight of this class. The thing that I'm most excited about watching develop, other than Burrow, are these linebackers. You were a lot bigger fan of Jermaine Pratt last year than me. I personally Mm. think all three of the linebackers they just drafted today, assuming Bailey's healthy, are better than him. Do you agree or disagree with that? Uh, I would disagree for two reasons. One, uh, you know, again, if Bailey was healthy, uh, boy, that would be interesting because, again, it's back to that big wide receiver, small wide receiver thing, right? Pratt is a big dude that moves he's built like malik harrison but he runs like a safety um he was a safety he's a converted safety so um i i really like pratt um bailey's got a better head on him than pratt did because pratt was still learning into the linebacker position again this is a guy at his first year at linebacker led the accs in tackles that's true i I don't deny the production 
You know, I mean, he was, he, and he was just figuring it out. It reminds me yeah. of um, Tremaine Edmonds. Reminds me of uh, no, the corner from Auburn, uh, Auburn Igbenogany. Oh, right? yeah. First year as a corner in the SEC, which is a ridiculous proposition, right? He was a converted wide receiver, and he had a really good year in the SEC as a corner in his first year. It's kind of the same thing with Pratt. So I really like Pratt. I would put Wilson ahead of him because he has all the tools. Um, he's got a great head, great instinct, great eyes, um, and he is healthy. So I would say he's maybe ahead of Pratt out of these four. Davis Gaither, really just a different player, is more more hybrid than than linebacker. Like he he plays that sort of modern linebacker, and he's a great um, sort of knifer and disruptor, um, which is a you know a necessary thing in today's NFL. But as an all around player, I I don't know that I would have him rated higher than Pratt. And Bailey, it's all about the health, right? If Bailey's healthy, I think he's definitely a better linebacker than Pratt. But he has major question marks at health, so I wouldn't put him above. So I guess Wilson would be above, clearly. I'd have him above Davis, Gaither, and Bailey. But great question. I'm curious to see because they have a million linebackers on the roster now. Who who ends up starting? They're, they're and They're loaded there for sure. There, there, might, there might just be some sort of rotation or something yeah yeah but uh anyway great great class again burrow he's that dude higgins he's that dude logan wilson akeem davis gaither marcus bailey exciting young linebacker trio khalid kareem extremely valuable uh late round edge that went honestly way later than he should have and adenogy uh toolsy swing tackle maybe but either way, overall, <laughs> yep. it's a franchise-changing class, even if only Burrow hits. If nobody else hits, as long as Burrow does, it's a phenomenal draft. So well done by them. Well done by everybody in the AFC North, really. One of the stronger divisions in the NFL in terms of total draft haul. I was not disappointed by any of their classes whatsoever. They all did a phenomenal job. Uh, and I want to thank you guys for for kind of hanging in here with us. I know we're close to two hours and, and 15 minutes here. Uh, very long episode, our longest episode we've ever done, but we had a lot of players to go over. We had a lot of, uh, quote unquote, hot takes to give, <laughs> but, uh, again, thank you guys for, for listening and watching. We'll be back soon with another, uh, division. Not sure which one yet. Maybe we'll put up a Twitter poll and have you kind of, have you guys decide who our next division is going to be. Uh, oh, that'd maybe, be fun. Yeah. Maybe just kind of have them direct the show for a little while, but, uh, yeah, again, thank you guys for listening. We'll be back soon with our next division, whoever that may be. And until then, we'll see you later. Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber-powered Internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home... Yes, cool. ...or attending one live... You can do more without spending more. Learn how to save at cox.com slash internet. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5G reliability as measured by Ookla LLC in the U.S. to H2023. Results may vary, not an endorsement. Other restrictions apply.